Blog Talk Radio. Sunday evening, everyone. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. It's June 14th, 2015. Happy Sunday. Happy Flag Day. Uh, we have a full house tonight. We have Chuck Vogel, Gary Schiavino, and Brian Fisher joining us to talk locality chondro breeding. Bill, how are you? Doing great, buddy. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. It's summertime here, finally. Yes. Yes, it's uh, it's summer here too. No hundred degrees yet, but those are uh, right around the corner. We've got uh, low nineties here in Texas, and I've been following uh, the East Coast uh, weather a little bit because I'm getting ready to ship some animals to our good friend Eric Burke tomorrow. So I know you guys are in the in the high eighties, maybe even low, creeping up to the low nineties this week. Yes, and I am loving it. I am loving it. So what are you sending our friend you know, Eric Burke? Oh, he's uh, basically taking an arm and a leg from me for uh, a carpet that I've been wanting in my collection for a long time. Uh, I'm sending him. Uh, I'm sending him a, a Jaguar morph carpet python. I'm sending him two chondros, and I'm sending him three royal pythons, high end animals, <laughs> for uh, an albino's <laughs> high end. That's how Eric rolls uh, for a albino zebra jag male, which is a only a few of those out there in the world, and I'm really happy to get get my hands on one of those. So Eric, uh, you know, he produces the, some of the top uh, carpet morphs in the United States, and and I suckered him into sending me one. Nice, nice. Yes, Eric does some great high end projects. Um, mm, we had does. a pretty good time a few weeks ago we got to hang out with eric and owen from our sister station morelia python radio we sure did and i know we uh, mentioned before coming on that we wanted to give those guys a a, just kind of a heads up and really uh thank them for uh hosting and participating in 2015 northeast carpet fest which took place um in pennsylvania at owen mcintyre's uh house uh, he and Eric Burke and Zach Baez essentially hosted that, and uh, you drove and I flew, uh, and we had a great time. Those guys did an awesome job, and um, the Morelia community was well represented there. So we'd like to thank those guys again. Yep, thank you guys. It was a great time. I laughed hard more times than I can remember. I, I had a great time. 
Uh, my stomach muscles were sore the next day from all the laughing that was going on. Uh, got to see Eric's collection, which is very nice. Get to see a lot of uh, Eric's got a, quite a varied Python collection, and it's great to see some stuff you know that it. I used to keep. Owen's, yeah, uh, Owen's collection. Oh uh, yeah, I mean Owen. I'm sorry, Owen. Owen. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Macbox Pythons were fun to play with. Yeah. Yes. Um, yep. A good time. And then Bill, you and I broke away, and we had a big strategy planning session for this uh, for this show. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. so it was a good time, which I think was, uh, buddy, uh, get me another beer, please. And then I brought back another <laughs> beer, and then that was our, our planning strategy. So that, uh, that was pretty much it. That's kind of what goes into our show every, uh, every month. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it shows. Well, <laughs> well, it was a, <laughs> yes, it does. Well, it was a good show. Um, I know you're getting ready to introduce, uh, uh, Chuck. Vogel, he's going to come on, and we're going to forego the um, the forum news this month because we have something that's much more important to talk about than that. So Chuck's going to come on and talk about the RICO auction. Um, so I think uh, without further ado, uh, let's get that going. Are you ready? Yeah, we're ready. Chuck Vogel, welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Hi, Chuck. We're, we're glad you're here. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm waiting for uh, well, ICAST 2 so that uh, I can see all these uh, all the people who I'm speaking with again soon. Funny, uh, Buddy and I were just talking about that uh, on the phone before the show started. ICAST 2. We're thinking uh, maybe 2017. I think it would Possibly. be very well attended. Uh, that's exactly what we said. I think it'd be a monster. I mean, it was big. Uh, the the first ICAST was big. I think this one would be. Uh, it would be incredibly big. Yeah, there would be no lack of interest, and I've always been curious about what happened to the uh, footage. Uh, I can't remember who was on the camera the whole time there. Uh, but there's an awful yes. lot of footage. From but yeah, do you know Chuck, that issue uh, th- that is being worked actually right now. So it's oh, good. been some technical glitches with uh, apparently audio and video were not recorded on the same the same tracks. So that needs to be matched up, and it sounds like uh, some work is going to finally be done with that. So fingers are crossed, and hopefully that can come out. Um, you know, ICAST 2017, that's a possibility. I might be rested well enough by then. I might have recovered um, <laughs> to, to do it again. It so. an infusion of energy to make something like that happen. It does, well, and we, you're surrounded by so many awesome people that you don't want to sleep. You're afraid to miss something. You're like, you know, I can sleep next week when this event's over. I want to you know, hang out with Chuck and hang out with Bill and, you know, hang out. Well, like uh, I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty easy to say that there was, uh, most of the people there did not get a lot of sleep the entire weekend. Absolutely. I, I shared a room, uh, when, when not tending Rico, I, I was in the room with Rocky Gravely and, and he would come in at about two in the morning 
<laughs> two to three in the morning, and then he would get up at about six. I would hear him in the shower, and I yep. thought, my God, how does this man sleep? Good, you know, live on three hours of sleep a night. But uh, you know, like you said, nobody wanted to miss out on anything, and uh, Rocky's a little younger than I am, so he was able to pull that off, I guess. But, uh, well, we were very before you came on, Chuck. Before you came on, Chuck, we were talking about Carpet Fest, and uh, I left Carpet Fest at 2.30 or 3 in the morning, and that thing was going on as strong as it was 8 o'clock that night. I mean, people just did not leave. I don't know when they left. Um, but, buddy, I guess you weren't too far behind me, but that party just it just didn't stop. Yeah, I can believe it. I don't think anyone That's wanted it. to leave that that room there at uh, at ICAF. I, I think uh, Rocky. I think that's where he was until about two in the morning every night because yep. no one wanted to to break it up. Yep. Right. Yep. The first night I locked that room up at close to five a.m. Oh. and the the second <laughs> night I made everyone leave about the same time. Because I needed at least wow. two hours of sleep. So yeah, wow, good mm. grief! That's even worse than I than I had imagined, <laughs> or better. <laughs> right, and then there was a group of younger people who uh, I went to bed at five and you know woke up at seven and came downstairs and trying to find a cup of coffee. And there were a group of people who I left them in the lobby and they had not moved. They were still there, but there was more beer cans uh, <laughs> laying around them. So. <laughs> Yeah, you can tell who the young guys are. Man. Yes, you can. The older you, the older you get, the harder it is to do that sort of thing. Well, you can right. do it. You just can't recover from it. Right. It just takes a, a while to recover from it. Yes, it does. Well, Chuck, why don't... So, um, uh, why don't you start to uh, give us kind of uh, an, an update or maybe even an introduction to uh, to the RICO auction. Okay. Um, yeah, my, speaking of a lack of sleep and, and whatnot, uh, this has been a long time coming, of course. Um, we lost RICO in October, and uh, I've uh, been back and forth to Chattanooga a bunch of times, um, in the last two years, but uh, I guess in January, Darlene and I started photographing animals and uh, uh, going through the Degai, trying to make sure that everything was in order and and, uh, properly identified and just assessing all the animals. uh, How many animals are you talking about, Chuck? There's about about 70 animals, 70-plus animals. Uh, and they're all chondros. The, the emeralds left early on. Uh, about 70, 70 to 80 chondros. Okay. But uh, we started working on this thing really in January, and here we are just now finally getting this show on the road uh, because it... Um, you know, people don't realize someone someone asked the other day on the on the Facebook page, they noticed all the photographs were the animals were being photographed on the same branch. 
and what 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 did we do to prevent cross contamination? <laughs> and I had to <laughs> laugh because Darlene is absolutely uh, meticulous, fastidious about cleanliness, and and uh, you know you you have to virus and the entire studio, the branch, the the hooks, the anything that may have come in contact with an animal. Uh, and then virus fan yourself. It's like a chemistry lab where you, you know, practically go in the, the decontamination chamber. Um, so it, it, it took an enormous amount of time uh, to photograph these 70-plus animals uh, and then, of course, to get them properly labeled and, uh, and watermarked and whatnot. And... Um, and we enlisted the help of many, many people. Uh, Aaron um, Burke, of course, was kind enough to help with the tech issues that neither Darlene nor I were were terribly familiar with. Um, turned out to be impossible to conduct the sale on the website. Um, and we talked about the, the Morelia Viridis Forum, and we talked about uh, her signal her Facebook page and various other other uh, venues, but uh, the consensus everything came back to the signal her uh, Facebook page, and so that's where we ended up. Nice. And how far into the auction are we? We just posted uh, round three. Uh, I got those up around noon today, and I believe there's eight uh, eight animals in this round. There's about seven or eight animals per round, uh, and we're just going to go until till we run out of animals. Um, Darlene is, uh, of course, she she and Rico married. Uh, Geez, I don't know. I I met Rico in 1986, I guess, and uh, I guess they were married uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, so Darlene's been there all along, and she's the the quiet partner, the silent partner, and um, she keeps a low profile, but uh, she's absolutely. Um, absolutely very competent and uh you know her husbandry uh she has worked in the zoo field uh quite a bit and so she has certain protocol and certain uh regimens that are are etched into her uh routine and um she's just very good with the animals and um so I, I I try my best to, to emulate her <laughs> as far as husbandry goes and organization. Um, but uh, we're moving along. We're we're slowly but surely. It's time now to to go ahead and get these animals out to to new homes. And uh, you know, Darlene needs to to go ahead and move on, move forward with her life. Um, uh, Chuck, Chuck, does each round yeah. uh, it, does it it lasts a week? Is that right? 
Yeah, we just shortened it. Actually, uh, it we had a five-day run and then a, a two-day break, two- to three-day break. And now we're going to have a, a four-day run. I guess it will be a four-day run and a three-day break. So it's basically okay. one round one round per week. Uh, and we're going to allow four of those days for the animals to be up on the page and then three days for us to get our ducks in a row and prepare for the next round. Fantastic. And, Chuck, uh, I, I can anyone add, participate? I, anyone? I, I was going to say I should add that the uh, Facebook, the Signal Herb Facebook page, is open to anyone, uh, and anyone can participate. Uh, I believe that Aaron did a good job of um, circulating, uh, promoting this thing, getting the word out to probably tens of thousands of people. Um, so I hope that there are, uh, you know, it seems to be a, a, a good number, good percentage of the Condro community that is aware of it. And uh, we've had great participation and tremendous support from <clears throat> certain members that are on with us tonight, uh, among others. Uh, Gary has done a fantastic job of providing support and guidance, as has Brian. And uh, Barry Manson and and Trooper and Aaron and and just a, a, a really a tremendous number of people. And uh, <clears throat> I'm doing a lot of the busy work, but there in no way is it a, a Darlene and Chuck uh, venture. There has been an awful lot of support from an awful lot of people to make this thing happen. Yeah. We'd uh, we'd expect nothing uh, less than that from the the best reptile community on the planet. So it's that's good to hear. Yeah, hands down, it is the best best community on the planet. Yeah, there's well, some uh, good looking animals over there. Yeah, I was definitely. Looking, and there's a really nice Wamana type male over there. Really nice. I like that one. Which one is that? Oh. It's a uh, Wilmena type male. I might have to oh, might yes. have to grab that one. Yes. Now was that is that in the the round three or was that in the previous round? Uh, I believe I it's in that's... this round, Chuck. Okay, okay. That's that's uh that's how frazzled I am at this point. I'm not sure what <laughs> what's on and, and what just left. I'm uh I've actually got a, my little notebook right here, so I'll look at round three and be right there with you. Yes, now I'm with you. Yes, you're looking at uh, at uh, 10021, I believe. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the one. So it's open to anyone. So if you're on Facebook, you could just do a search and type in Signal Herp, and it'll take you right there, and you can see all the animals. And it's, I mean, it's really simple. You just... Uh, you see an animal you like, you'll look at the current bid, and you're doing the bidding in specific uh, amounts, right, Chuck? I think you can't, like $25 is the increments that, that you guys have set. So if, you know, it's a $900 snake, the next you know the next bid would be 925 Is that correct? Right. And initially, okay, cool. we, we didn't set any parameters at all, uh, but... 
it sort of prevents the the nine hundred and one dollar or nine hundred and five dollar things there at the end. Uh, you know, we had a lot of feedback from people throughout the first two rounds, and many, many, many suggested that you you limit the minimum increment to something. Uh, and, and 25 was the most frequently suggested amount. Um, and for the first time this time, we did put in a, a starting bid. Uh, we uh, have to give Trooper credit for uh, suggesting that, that we have some sort of a safety net as far as a minimum or a reserve for each animal because we may get uh, as we get farther into the the sale, uh, you know, it, we don't want to just have animals being given away. Uh, if people Absolutely. have exhausted Absolutely. all their, if people have exhausted all their funds, we, uh, you know, we we want to make sure that uh, it would be a disservice to, to Rico and Darlene at this point to, to just give animals away. Uh, yeah, for Absolutely. the first time. For the first time in this round, we went ahead and put some some low starting bids, uh, except for for one animal, which is actually in my snake room, and that has a kind of a high minimum. <laughs> but the rest of them are all very reasonable. <laughs> well, Chuck, I don't have to tell you and the people that are on this um, on this call and on the show that it represents a, an incredibly unique opportunity to have an animal uh, that was owned and cared for um, by the most iconic uh, reptile person really in our lifetime. And that, that's not just chondros. That is period. So, yeah. you know, my goodness, you know, throw, you know, uh, the, uh, the opportunity just is never going to present itself again. So, yeah, this is it. This is this is the last of uh, the signal herp animals, and uh, most I, I probably I want to say the majority of these animals are signal herp uh, captive born and bred animals. There are there are some that came from from other people in the community and and from Bushmaster, but generally uh, the majority of them were hatched right there in Rico's incubators and. Fed by him, and it's the final uh, the final offering, which has been a, a very difficult, as you can imagine, thing to to do. Um, but it's also something that uh, you know I promised him that I would uh, make sure that it got done. Um, well, I, I think it's safe to say that most of the people that are bidding and acquiring these animals are are the most passionate people uh, in our community. So, if that's any solace, uh, I hope it is to to Rico and to you and to Darlene that uh, these animals, uh, I'm assuming, are going to the most people. They're going to prize them uh, the most for what they are. Yeah, and you just, uh, Darlene actually spoke almost verbatim the words that you just spoke. The, the, her goal is for these animals to go into the hands of people who will recognize them and value them for what they are and um, carry on a little piece of Rico's legacy. 
And, um, you know, her her primary concern is, as it always was with Rico, is the welfare of the animals. And, um, you know, we would like to see as many people as possible have the opportunity to own uh, a little piece of of that um, iconic group. Because um, it's, uh, well, you, you said it well, it's... Uh, one of the most iconic um, groups that that we've had the pleasure of of seeing come to fruition. Fantastic. The community can't thank you enough for participating in that, Chuck. I can't thank them enough for the patience and support because this is brand new to me and and to Darlene. We're, We're both behind the scenes type people. And uh, we're we're not tech savvy. Uh, we're not auction. Uh, uh, we're mm-hmm. not very well versed in in the art of auctioning, <laughs> uh, and we're not <laughs> professional photographers. <laughs> but we do know how to care for chondros, and uh, we did know Rico extremely well. So that that seemed to be the most important. Uh, those were the most important factors. But people have been very forgiving, very forgiving and very supportive, and we can't thank them enough. We're good. We're going to. That only makes sense. Absolutely. Yep. Well, Uh, we're going to continue to support. uh, Yeah, go ahead, buddy. Yeah, I just want to let everyone know if you can't find the auction and you happen to be on the GTP Keeper Radio Facebook page, I just pinned. Round three to the uh, to the top of the page, so you Very can good. go there if you can't find on Rico's thing and, and follow it over. Thank you so much, Perfect. buddy. And, and if if at some point in the show uh, I can also give my email and Darlene's email, if if anyone wanted to contact either of us, uh, I think most most uh, our emails are out there. So for the most part, uh, people have it, but uh, we're happy to make ourselves available in that way, too. Well, perfect, uh, Chuck. Why don't you go ahead and give us that contact information now. We want to, um, as we bring all uh, the other, uh, all three of the guests on, we want to give them an opportunity uh, probably uh, better sooner than rather than later to give their contact information. Um, so why don't you go ahead and give your and Darlene's contact information. Uh, okay. If, uh, if you would. My, mine is a very complicated one. It is Chuck Vogel at BellSouth.net. <laughs> and that's okay. Vogel is V O G E L, not L E. <laughs> um, All right. Just Chuck Vogel at BellSouth.net. And okay. Darlene, Darlene's I love, it is Darweedy, and that is D A R W E E. D-Y.net. Okay. Excellent. And, and I'm assuming so, people... Uh, uh, Weedy, she's a master gardener as well as a, a, an amazing uh, herpeticulturist. She is a master gardener. So that's where the Darweedy comes from. <laughs> okay. Well, I can see those things going uh, hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. 
Chuck, we're going to move on uh, kind of into the uh, meat of the show, so to speak. Um, obviously, you know, uh, we have three guests. It's going to be a locality uh, roundtable tonight. Um, we've got you on the phone first, so why don't you begin um, kind of with an introduction about uh, what locality types uh, you keep in particular. Uh, obviously, most of the people listening know the answer to that question, but why don't you give just kind of a be, uh, brief background on um, your take on the locality animals that you're keeping. No problem. Um, I, I, for many, many, many years, was an arboreal pit viper guy and and um, old world and new world arboreal pit vipers I was pretty enthralled with, and I still am. But when uh, the, the Kofiow rolled in in the early to mid-2000s, they caught my eye. I remember it was at one of the Daytona, I don't know if it was still in Orlando, or actually I guess it had gotten to Daytona by then, but when they first started appearing in mass, uh, and and I laid my eyes on these first uh, Kofiel, and of course the, the imports that came in were all bright yellow sub-adults with the lavender dorsal blotches, and I just, my jaw dropped, and I thought, my God, these look like giant yellow eyelash vipers. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then I came to find out that they were this this new, from this new locality, which was this oceanic, isolated little island uh, uh, off Papua New Guinea, and and. It was uh, they were a bit of an enigma, uh, you know. There, there was one camp that that said they're they're all going to stay yellow forever, and uh, those were that's the camp that owned them and and you know wanted to sell them for a lot of money, and then there was another <laughs> camp that was a little more realistic that uh, said no, uh, they're all going to turn green probably. Uh, or, or then there was the the middle ground that said some will stay yellow and some will turn green, and and the middle ground people were were correct. Um, but I, I, as soon as I laid eyes on them and and uh, looked into them and learned about them, that's really the first time. I mean, I I grew up uh, or my adult life I've spent in Gainesville, Florida, where. Eugene Bissett uh, had more chondros than God. Uh, Yeah, he had just an enormous collection of chondros here, and and I used to, of course, go gaze upon those and uh, and Enrico's, and and I've always appreciated them, Uh, but I was busy with my little uh, eyelash vipers and temple vipers and palm vipers and whatnot, uh, but long about um, 2006, 2005, I guess, uh, four maybe, um, I bought the first Kofiow, and, and then I was fortunate enough to buy a group, uh, two pairs from uh, a science teacher in Texas in, um, I guess, 2007, 2006, 2007. Uh, and the first clutch came in 2008, and uh, clutches have come every year since. So I've I've just been uh, there's still I still have more questions than answers about them. Uh, as long as that continues to be the case, uh, I suspect that I'll continue to work with them. 
Chuck, maybe you could describe uh, to the listeners what are kind of their the characteristics of a of a coffee owl um, uh, that you see that are present in a lot of the animals that you either acquired or produced. Um, you know, what what are their general characteristics? Size, color, temperament, that kind of stuff. Um, their size is 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 they're not the biggest. Uh, the biggest chondros out there, and nor are they the smallest. They're, I, I would say, probably middle of the road. Um, of course, the unique thing about them is, is some percentage retains the the yellow juvenile color. Uh, all of the neonates are yellow 100% of the time. I think we can safely make that statement now. Um, uh, their temperament is universally docile. Uh, I've never had nor produced one that had a foul temperament. And uh, nice. I guess the down the downside of that, if there is one, uh, is that they they um, developed a reputation for being difficult to feed the little guys, the hatchlings. And uh, actually, to me, I don't find them much more difficult than little eyelash vipers or temple vipers or any of the palm vipers. Uh, they're all a pain in the butt to feed. Um, <laughs> but with these little kofi owl, you can, you can pick them up carefully and stick a little pinky head in their mouth if they're really, uh, really uncooperative. And, right. uh I, I, you know, I, I don't hesitate to do that with uh, ones that don't want to eat. I don't let them go terribly long anymore. Uh, I assist feed with pinky heads a couple of times, and usually it takes two or three times, and then they start taking pinks, no problem. Um, what's your definition? What's your definition on, of very? What's your definition of very long, Chuck? How long will you let a baby go? Is just a, a gestalt feeling? You just look at each individual animal, well, or you let them go a month, or kind of what's your? That's a, that's a great question. And the first clutch in in 2008, I think maybe one or two out of uh, however many I had uh, uh, eight, and the others were just they they were either runners or tuckhead and and couldn't get them to strike for anything and i kept calling rico saying dude snakes will not eat they're just not going to eat they're going to starve to death and i think you know a good eight weeks had passed and and i was really starting to worry that they literally were going to starve to death and he very casually being the way that rico you know being rico he said well you may want to assist feed some pink heads maybe next week or so. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, damn, Rico, come on. You know, why didn't you tell me that a month ago? Um, <laughs> but, you know, he he knew they weren't going to starve to death. They were, they were well uh, uh, hydrated and, and they weren't going to starve to death. But, um I, after probably uh, the postnatal shed, I don't attempt to feed until the, the postnatal shedding is done. And then, you know, if they haven't eaten voluntarily after a month, three weeks, yep. three or four weeks, then I go ahead and start uh, assist feeding pinky heads. And I literally just pick them up. Uh, I, I don't uh, stuff the pinky heads 
down their little gullets. I just op- uh, uh, get them to open their mouths, get the head in there as far as my two fingers can push it, and then set them down on the perch. And it's uh, if, if you miss the, the shoebox down pretty well, they can't dislodge it. It's easier for them to swallow it than to dislodge it. Uh, right. And I think some, sometimes it kicks in that uh, working of the jaw muscles and the process of swallowing a food item uh, and kicks in that whole GI tract. Uh, and, and you get a little bit of growth from, from pinky heads, a couple meals. And uh, generally, uh, on average, you know, three times, four, three or four times, and they're good to go. They'll they start taking them voluntarily, and they're off to the races. We're getting kind of into the husbandry aspect, which is fine. Um, we talked earlier we love to, to jump around in the show, but I'll ask you something real quick. You, you said that the, uh, the neonates were well hydrated. Is that because even though they weren't eating, you're, giving, you're regularly soaking them or misting them heavily? Or what, what made you say that they're, they're well hydrated even though they weren't eating? Well, I always have multiple uh, water bowls in my shoe boxes or and sweater boxes, even the adult cages. Uh, I use multiple water bowls, and um, and of course I also mist because uh, uh, after eight years of working with uh, Waglerai Temple Vipers that absolutely can't relate to standing water, they literally will dehydrate and, and die. If, if water doesn't fall on them, um, you know, I, I just uh, instinctively uh, misted pretty heavily, especially there at the beginning, and made sure that they were drinking. Um, and I saw, I could see them drinking out of the water bowls, and I could see them drinking off the coils, so uh, I knew that they were staying well hydrated. Uh, but I was I was sweating bullets until Rico happened to mention that I might want to assist feed them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. Fantastic. Great, great info, Chuck. Thank you. Yeah, Chuck, thanks very much. I love Kofi Owls. They're, you know, just completely, you know, tremendous animals. They're fantastic. Um, But we're going to bring Brian Fisher on next. Brian Fisher, welcome to... GTP Keeper Radio. Brian, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and Condros? Sure. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, so I've kind of been in it um, for quite a while since I was really young. Um, I started keeping them at the age of 12. So it's kind of, I think, me and Max Moore were like the little youngins, um, you know, the the past 10 years or so. Um, And I... I started out with uh, with Biox, and that's kind of my main focus as far as localities go. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, ever ever since, that's, that's mainly what's been the centerpiece of my uh, of my collection. Um, during college, I kind of you know got rid of most of my stuff for a little while, just just to be able to focus on school. And so now I'm kind of building my collection back up and. Uh, and really kind of putting an emphasis on getting, you know, the, the cream of the crop of, of the locales that I'm looking to work with. Um, 
And as I said to you guys before, it's kind of uh, it's really evident um, how few people are really working with locality chondros. Because I haven't bred chondros in, in probably six or seven years, and and you guys are having me on to, to talk about locality <laughs> breeding. Um, right. So yeah, that that's a little background on me. Okay. How can uh, Brian, if we are interested in your animals or your projects, how can we contact you? Um, I'm pretty readily accessible on Facebook. Um, search my name. Um, my email is bfisher44 at hotmail.com. Uh, my last name is spelled F-I-S-E-H-E-R. Um, and I also have a, a page for for the Chondro stuff. It's called Chondro Hub, uh, C-H-O-N-D-R-O-H-U-B. Okay, and is that a Facebook page or is that a, a dedicated website? Uh, it's a, right now it's just a dedicated Facebook page. Um, I had a website. I subsequently took it down for the moment because I haven't had time to update it. Um, but there will eventually be a website also. Okay, what is it about the BIAC locality that makes you want to keep them? Uh, well, I mean, like I said, I kind of I started with uh, with a, a beefy red red neo biak, um, which is probably why I'm I'm partial to them. Um, that was you know what what I started with. Um, you know, initially I was mainly attracted to you know the the rich um, you know vibrant red with the big old dorsal markings on the neonates. Um, you know, all the unique characteristics of Biox you know, are kind of what attracted me. They have the, the accentuated dragon face. You know, they have a, a very long color change. Uh, they're very variable with, uh, you know, kind of like a blotchy adult coloration on a lot of them. Um, you know, a few that I have have lots of black. Some have lots of white. So they're, they're very variable within the same, you know, the same locality. Um, and on the breeding side, you know, as commonly as they're imported, they're, they're Probably easily the most um, commonly imported of all the of all the chondro locales. You know, very few people outside of Rico and probably at Bradley have made much of an effort to produce "quote unquote" pure clutches of Biox. Um, and so they're uh, they're definitely my favorite. So that that's kind of uh, you know why I'm uh, making a big effort to. You know, produce some from captive U.S. captive bred Biox so that people have a a little more of an option other than just you know Bushmaster or you know wild caught imports. Um, okay. Do you do you feel that uh, because they are imported so frequently that they're often overlooked for breeding projects and more seen more as a uh, uh, an, an introductory chondro? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I don't think they're necessarily overlooked in the designer, um, the designer world. Um, they're, they're definitely a great uh, way to, you know, get some new blood in there, and they they definitely throw some some crazy things with like blue line and calico stuff and, and things like that. Um, but it just seems like people are are uh, you know they're fine with just getting the the imports if they want a, a pure, pure biak. Um, doesn't seem like there's much of an effort. Maybe that's a, 
a pricing thing. It, you know, maybe the juice isn't worth the squeeze to most people. Um, okay. But you know, uh, you know, it's worth it to me. So that, that's what I'm what I'm willing to work with. Um, you know, we always we often hear that Biox are a little bit more high strung of a chondro, and people tend to say they're you know more difficult. And if you want to handle a, a snake, that's not the chondro for you. Um, does temperament, their temperament, or their myths about their temperament, has they has that turned you off with working with them, or you're not bothered by it? Um, I'm not too bothered by it. Um, I I have some that are perfectly handleable. Um, they are definitely a more uh, nervous uh, locale. That would probably be a better word, in my opinion, than you know aggressive or or bitey. Um, okay. They're definitely a little more hes- hesitant. Um, I've noticed, um, but most of them, once, once you kind of, you know, get them out of the cage on the perch and you start to work them, um, as long as you work them a little slower than you would maybe like a, a, a docile or roux or something like that, um, they're, they're, uh, they're workable. Um, and then I definitely have some, some demons also, <laughs> um, <laughs> actually the, the, the two captive bred that I have are actually far worse than the imports that I'm working with, um, oh, ironically. So, Yeah. What's your goal? I mean, what are you trying to – what are you focusing on? Are you picking out uh, certain physical characteristics that you're looking to uh, bring forward in breeding projects uh, or just just like BX in general? Uh, definitely. Um, I'm kind of – more attracted to the 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 blacks that the biox tend to uh tend to exhibit um i like contrast in my chondros so um i'm really trying to reproduce kind of the black triangles um on the dorsal and um i'm also working with uh the diablo line biox that the the guys at the barn produced um uh, which you know, one generation in, they have lots and lots of black speckling, um, you know, mite phasing sort of thing. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely kind of making that the focus of my projects. And then I also have a couple that have a lot of white flecking and flowers and things like that. And that's also another, another direction I might go. Um, two separate projects within the same, same locality project. Okay. Good deal. Brian, I uh I love your description of uh the BX as being nervous, uh their temperament being more nervous than than aggressive um or bitey. If can you tell a difference in, and I don't know what the percentage or how many animals you have that are uh maybe imported uh versus animals that are captive uh bred in your collection, but can you tell a a noticeable difference in the temperament uh, or, or attitude in, in either of those two uh, animals. Um, it doesn't. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to why some are, you know, more nervous than others. Like I said, my two captive bred ones are the most, the most, uh, you know, bitey. I, I don't know a better word, but they're, they're the most bitey of of the ones in my collection. Um, I've probably got half a dozen imports. Um, 
few of them are babies, so I don't really work with them much um, as far as trying to handle them. But uh, right. the the, lar- the larger ones, I have a few females. Um, you know, one is quite easily handleable, and the other one is extremely uh, nervous. Um, right. You know, at, as soon as the door opens, it's perked up and kind of like you know checking me out. Um, so yeah, I I don't know that I've seen any any real rhyme or reason as to why with you know certain ones are more nervous than others. Um, I keep them all pretty much the same. Um, so yeah, I, I haven't really noticed anything. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to ask this question now, and I know Chuck um, hinted on the Cafio, um babies, and, and I'll ask you, but this is a question that um, that has always kind of plagued me about babies, and it's it's the red versus yellow. And uh, I know, and I think most viewers know that Biox can have mixed clutches uh, consisting of red and yellow. Can can you describe any rhyme or reason about, um, you know, how Biox, the, the clutches work? Like if you have two Biox that were red babies and they're bred together, or are you going to have a resulting clutch with more red babies or yeah, no idea, just it doesn't matter? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, like I said, I, I haven't been breeding much um, basically for the past, you know, six, six or so years from college and on. Um, but from from what I've seen from from some other people and and prior to that, um, it it seems to kind of work the same way that that it works with you know people that are doing mixed designer clutches and stuff like that. It it does seem that there are some some maroon. Uh, that will only throw maroons. Um, I think for the most part, most of them will produce mixed clutches. And then uh, the yellows, I'm, I can't really speak on whether they're able to produce mixed clutches if bred to another yellow. I've, I haven't actually um, done any pairings like that. I, I tend to prefer the maroon babies, so most of my collection... Uh, is uh, you know were maroons um okay so so i'm not entirely sure how you know what the yellows do um right. the maroons def- definitely tend to work similar to you know all the designer stuff where people talk about you know red dominant and all that sort of stuff there are definitely do seem to be some that only produce reds for whatever reason okay all right all right, great information, uh, great information, Brian. Um, and thanks again for uh, coming on the show. And we're going to introduce Gary uh, here uh, in a second, but obviously um, we're going to kind of work through the roundtable again. I know it's been uh, at least 15 minutes since Chuck has spoken, and so he's probably um, either salivating or, or close to death. So. We're going to get Gary on for a minute here, and uh, then we'll kind of get the roundtable going because we want to talk husbandry. We want to talk about breeding. We want to talk establishing babies and all that kind of stuff. So uh, thanks uh, so much for being with us, Brian. Yep, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Gary, how are you, my friend? Hey, Bill. How you doing? Hey, everybody. Thanks for having hey, me on. I appreciate it. Thank oh, you. Yeah, 
I was getting a little sleepy waiting to get on the phone here. I was listening to you guys talk about Carpet Fest, so I was trying to wake myself up a little bit. Well, uh, yeah, you knew you you know that you were not going to get away easily with that, my friend, because sorry, even though even though I flew, okay, yeah, from from Texas, Dallas, Texas, all the way up to Pennsylvania, you couldn't get you in did. your car and drive an hour and a half. You know, shame on me, I, and uh, <laughs> I, I did miss out on that. The uh, I, I have to I have to see the pictures, I guess, at Carpet Fest. One of these years, you're going to have to convince me to go. A good group of guys. I see them all on Facebook. Um, yeah, I just don't speak that language. That's the problem. I mean, I get confused by all those morphs, but I have to uh, get more familiar with everything, and i got to make my way over there because it does seem like a good group of people. So, I mean, I'm sorry well, to it was that. a good group, and... And I mean, we all know you don't do well in social situations, so no. you know, understand hesitancy uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> coming. But uh, yeah. listen, next time you know, come you you can hang with Buddy and I, and we'll get you through it. That'll be that'll be perfect. I appreciate that. Baby steps. <laughs> I'll issue a pardon. I'll issue a pardon for not making it to the to the mar- to the uh, carpet fest. <laughs> yeah. Gary, they all seem to compare to those. Those barbecues at Shane's, do they? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Gary, will no, you go to don't. ICAST too? Will you go to ICAST too, Gary? Absolutely, yeah. I lo- I, that was that was the best thing I'd ever been to. Honestly, I just loved it. Just a great experience, great group of people. I loved it. it was it's going to be hard. The only challenge you guys have, and buddy, I know you were instrumental in putting that on, is just duplicating that first time, that first round, because it was uh, just such a special. You know, with everything going on with Rico and everything, it's going to be tough. But you know what? I think you played it right. 2016, 2017, everybody was salivating again to get together for that. If you had it too frequently, you'd probably miss out on something. But if you have it, you know, just every few years like that, I think you'd have a great out. You know, just uh, everybody would make it and uh, be a special event. So I look forward to that. So good. Agreed. Agreed, 100%. Well, Gary, listen. Um, why don't you uh, give the listeners an introduction to, I mean, you're obviously on here for a reason. It's the locality show. So, uh, again, we, uh, everybody on this uh, show knows what you work with, but why don't you explain in your own words what you're working with and um, why you've chosen to work with that particular locality. Okay. Yep, thanks, Bill. I, um, yeah, I guess uh, I, my name just tends to be somewhat synonymous now when people hear the R-Facts. I guess I'm the you know, one of the few people working with them, I, that was not my intention. I was not looking to be the RFAC guy. It's, uh, the long and short of it is that I knew nothing about the locale type. I, I got my first conjures in 1993, I believe it or not, 22 years ago. And back then, unfortunately, we didn't have the information that we have today, and I had a bad experience with them. I wound up losing both of those animals and really kept me out of chondros for about 10 years. <clears throat> I still loved them. And what I decided to do at that point was to... Um, you know, just start brokering some animals, just get some unique animals in chondros, and it was just my way of staying involved with chondros without having to get too involved with uh, long-term care of them and breeding. I was just intimidated, to be honest with you. Again, it was, uh, you know, it was quite some time ago. And I used to always just go over Cameron's list, Bushmaster, and see what he had, and and, uh, I'd buy a lot of animals from him just to basically see what the hell they look like because uh, even today, as you know, Cameron has some great stuff, but he does not put pictures of any of his animals and um i think it was in 2000 right. and 2005 it was, I, I, now he may have had him before that but i saw our facts on his list in 2005 
and I had called him about him, uh, called Cameron about the artifacts, and he said, yeah, it's a new locality type, and uh, they, they apparently only hatch out as red babies, and that was in 2005. I think I bought okay. six of them from six of them from him, and then I sold them in 2000. And I, so, I sold them when I got them, and I just wanted to see what they looked like, and they were established, and I wound up selling them off. And then it was like a year later, <clears throat> it was uh, in um, – 2000, I don't even know, I'm trying to think of the dates, probably again like 2005, 2006, he had some more artifacts on the list. And as far as I know, and I could be wrong, uh, but I, that was pretty much the last time Cameron ever had artifacts, and was, it was quite, it was probably, uh, you know, that that many years ago. And I bought wow. six babies, and I, I wound up holding one back, and it was a male. And um, so I raised it up. I still have that same animal today that was, uh, yeah, hatched in, it was actually hatched late 2005, and then I was able to track down one of the artifacts that I had sold a year earlier from a different clutch, wound up to be a female, and that's my original pair of artifacts. So I've had them now for 10, 11 years. And that's really what got me into them. I just I, I, I had them because I said I couldn't find them anywhere else. I love the idea they only hatch red babies. So far, I've proven that to be true. Um, but we'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens how with many, them down how the many, road. But How many clutches has that pair uh, produced? Four, four clutches. So far, and everyone was uh, was a red neo. Now, again, uh, you know, I would need a larger sample group, right? Because they only have those two animals to work with. Um, sure. They were both red neos, but um, I'll, I'm going to jump to the manaquaris for a little bit too, and then I'm going to jump back to the artifacts, Bill, and answer your question about um, and get to you know what I'm trying to accomplish now as far as determine if they're always red babies or if I can get a mixed clutch from artifacts. So. What, um, just to jump to the Manox for one second, the Manaquaris, which is the other locale type I work with. And that's Honestly, those are the only two chondros I really work with, are the Arfax and the Manaquaris. Right. And uh, the Manax, the, the animals I originally worked with, again, two, I'm an old guy. What can I tell you? They were from 2003, so all my stuff is, you know, it's been around for quite some time, and those are the original Dave Prada animals. And uh, I, I wound up buying those animals from Dave Prada back in 2010, so they were the babies that came in 2003, and that's what we all refer to, as I refer to, as the Dave Prada animals, because, you know, he, again, we're going back 10, 12 years, and we didn't have the knowledge we have today, and we didn't have the access to photos, so, you know, Dave would post those photos everywhere, and people kind of knew they were Dave Prada Manaquaris, and um, so, again, I purchased those animals in 2010, and I purchased them, Dave just got out of Condros, and uh, what, what drew me into those Manaquaris is that, um, all those babies they produced and he raised up, every one of them had blue in them. Every single Manaquari he produced had some degree of blue. And uh, I love that because although a Manaquari to me is nowhere as nice as some of the true blue animals that are out there, I mean, some of the stuff we're seeing on Facebook is amazing. Um, the only issue I have with some of that really high-end stuff is that it wasn't consistent. You know, I mean, you would see some screaming animals from a clutch, and even today this happens. And you'll see some green animals from that same clutch, and I, and I couldn't think of anything worse than paying thirty-five hundred to five grand for a baby and have it turn green from a from a high blue clutch. And even now, when we go on right. King Snake, we'll see, you know, high blue animal, you know, high blue line animals for sale, and it'll be a green animal. Um, right. So that's what attracted me to the Manaquara. I was like, a, you know, for the the price of the animal, the locality type, I knew I'd get some degree of blue, and that's what really drew yeah. me into them. And. Um, but there's still what we don't know for sure between the Manaquaris and the Arfaxes. is some people tend to think they're the same animal. Some people think they're the same locality. And that's really what, what I'm focused on is, uh, you know, that, honestly, that stuff really doesn't excite me that much. I'm really truly a hobbyist. I just want to produce nice animals. That's my goal. 
but um, since I have, you know, 2.3 RFACs now, I figure, hey, this is a little fun project I could kind of do on the side. And, and uh, what, are, what I'm trying to do now, and I did this year, and that's what I was mentioning earlier, Bill, is that, and Buddy, is that um, I actually crossed a, a Manaquari to an RFAC this year for the first time. And uh, what I'm hoping to see is that, hey, if I had a mixed clutch come out, um, you know, maybe that'll tell me that, well, and both animals I'm working with were both red neos. So I'm thinking, theoretically, if, if the quote-unquote Manaquari was really an RFAC, you know, we'll see. Will I get all red babies? Will I get a mixed clutch? I, you know, I'm just trying to see what the what the coloration of the babies have, if, if will tell me anything. Um, the only bad news on that is I'm, I have eight eggs cooking right now from that clutch. They're about 23, 24 days in. The eggs look perfect, but they're just, unfortunately, they're not viable. There's a few. There's maybe two have very weak vein development. I'm just hoping they can go to distance, but um, yeah. so we'll see what comes out of that. Um, yeah, I remember. Uh, I, I remember when you posted the uh, the results uh, after you had uh, candled those eggs a few a few days after they lay. That was uh, yeah. it's it's bad news for all of us. Yeah, yeah, it's just a bummer, you guys. We've all been there, and it's it's even worse because at least if they come out as slugs, you kind of you're okay. They're slugs. They're no good. Yeah. And we kind of you know you just take it from there. It still stinks when they come out as perfect eggs. You just you know it just gives you that such false sense of security, that false hope, but. Um, so that's it, Bill. I'm, that's really what I'm focused on, and um, you know. So what, the only thing, you know, I've never been over to uh, West Papua, you know, Indonesia. I've never been to those areas, but the only thing I know for sure is, I think the Arfak Mountains are roughly 80 to 100 miles from the Manakwari Mountains. I mean, they're pretty close to each other. Um, I know they're separated by this, you know, this valley that's approximately like a thousand square miles, and it's like I don't know, 4,600 feet deep at its deepest point, and that's what really separates the Arfak Mountains from the Manakwari uh, Mountains. And can you get two completely different locality-type animals, you know, uh, that are um, unique from each other? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a good enough distance. But, you know, again, um, just trying to see what I could find out by uh, bringing some of the stuff together. That's very interesting. You know, one of the things that I've noticed between your Manakwari's and I've got a pair of Bushmaster um, Manicoris. Uh They don't look like yours. They don't look like, you know, you call yours the, the day, the Prada line. Yeah. Uh, mine are beautiful animals. They're they're a lime green. And, you know, they're the typical sarong or Manicori type pattern, lime green with, uh, you know, beautiful blue dorsal markings. But they don't look like yours. You know, yours are... Darker, they have uh, a more black uh, yeah. coloration to them, more blue throughout the uh, the, the, the non-blue stripe. What, what is the difference there between those? I think it's just well, just line breeding now, Bill. Right, just bringing the animals back to each other. And um, did you start out with your Manox? Were they, were they yellow neos or red neos? Uh, I believe they were both yellows. Yeah, and that's, that's a huge, huge differentiator right there. I mean, in any of these locale types, I know even Brian was mentioning the difference in the yellow and the red with the biox. And, but, yeah, I mean, you, you would see a significant difference, um, you know, just right off the bat if you were working with animals that were red neos. I just actually was able to uh, acquire an imported male, manico- male uh, manoc that was a red neo. He's still red when, I, when he came in. And it's interesting now he's going through his color change, and um, he's he's just not going to be as nice as the Prada stuff that I have. He's not, but I'm hoping that I can breed him into the Prada stuff, diversify the bloodline a little bit more, and see what comes out of it. But um, 
yeah, these red manaquaris, even if you, you know, even though I love the stuff I have and, you know, uh, you know, that's what attracted me to them to begin with, but red manaquaris, um, they're tough to come by and they just always have some degree of blue, even if you get a, you know, captive hatch baby directly from Cam, you're going to You'll, you'll be uh, pleasantly surprised with it. But I think a lot of locale types have that, too. I mean, I think we could say the same thing about the Cyclops mountain animals as well. But, um, you know, that's the stuff I love. I'm always looking for the retinios. They really tend to bring the blue out, as we know. So, Gary, um, if someone wanted to uh, contact you to talk to you about your chondros, how, how would they get a hold of you? Um, just I'm all over Facebook, buddy. I, uh, okay. So you can always find me there, and Gary at GS Reptiles is my um, email, and uh, my initials uh, gsreptiles.com. You can always I, always I try to keep it updated. I hate going to websites, and they're not updated in you know months or years, so I try to stay on top of it. But you can always see what I'm working with and clutches that I had and, and things of that nature. So. Okay, good deal. So Facebook is for you. That's how we'll get a hold of Facebook, it. Facebook, yeah, look at me. I'm, I'm jumping into new things. <laughs> Six months ago, yeah. I jumped into Facebook. You just, I'm, I, I'll surprise you like that. You never know what I'm going to do. I'm crazy like that. <laughs> God, I, I was going to say, six months, Gary, six months ago, we would have had to send you a smoke signal you know, so, to contact you. Know, you. Six, you know, guess what? About three years from now, I plan on tweeting, so I'm going to give you a heads up on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Don't Instagram me, okay, Bob? No, Don't no, I can't even spell that for Christ's sake. How can I use it? Yeah. All right, all right. Well, we've gotten some so, great uh, information. Yeah, about uh, some some uh, locality uh, chondros. It's uh, awesome stuff, uh, buddy. Let's let's continue the roundtable. Let's let's move on. Sure. Let's get um, let's get Chuck back on. Uh, maybe he can talk. What do you you want to go husbandry? Let's. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit. We didn't put this in the outline, but Bill and I talked about this tonight before the show. Was um, uh, you know, why is it important that we maintain the locality identity for these animals? Um, you know, if you want to oh, you know, share your thoughts on why you think it's important, uh, or maybe you don't think it is. So um, um, we're curious to hear the answer to that. We'll start with Chuck, and then we'll go to Brian, and then Gary. Oh, thank you so much, buddy, for that lead-in. That was just what I was waiting for. <laughs> uh, I'm thrilled that uh, that there and there are a lot of people that are interested in uh, seeing the localities kept uh, or, or good examples of each locale uh, uh, kept true because it's so tempting. There are so many designer things that you can create with with the calicos and the blues and the melanistics and I mean it's like a, a big huge candy jar just right there at your fingertips and it's real tempting uh, to start throwing in this ingredient and that ingredient and, and stir it all up and see what you get but um, there's there's so much to be said for uh, a lot of these individual locales and like you said Gary's, uh, Gary's uh, are different than a lot of the others, whether it, it has to do with yellow neos or red neos. Um, you know, there's variation within each locale. And uh, I know that uh, probably Brian's got the most variable. I mean, Beox are as variable as they come. Um, but the same is true with Kofiao. They're, they're highly variable. 
Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's variation within each locale, but at, at the same time, there's, there's certain characteristics that are always going to be true to that locale. And uh, I personally, I don't, I don't know why, but I just, it's important to me that uh, there are representatives of, of, of these locales that are kept, that are bred true, that we have examples of what a, what a uh, uh, artifact should look like or a cofial should look like. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I'd hate to see it all become uh, just a big uh, melting pot um, because I think a, a great thing would be lost there. And uh, it worries me to death with cofial because there are just not very many people that have groups of Kofiao, and, and now I sort of took over for Rico, and you know, he and I were producing them every year, but uh, there weren't a whole lot of, of other sources for them. And uh, so I'm, I'm a little nervous about, uh, you know, a hurricane comes through and blows my house away. There, We may not have any Kofiao. <laughs> but, uh, That's a good point. I I'm thrilled to, to to have this discussion about uh, locality versus designer, and uh, I mean I love them all. There's something to be said for for all of them, uh, and I'm guilty. I I uh, had to throw Rico's. Uh, I traded a couple of Kofiao for a couple designers back uh, five years ago, and um, you know I. Really, sort of by accident, uh, trying to get a with a photo op, uh, ended up breeding his his blue blue guy to to a cofiel, and um, it was unintentional. But I did it again the next year <laughs> because uh, you know, we we decided that, yeah the the neos were so interesting and and it piqued Rico's interest, and uh, you know I. So I'm guilty, you know. Here I am saying, uh, you know, I'm a big proponent of, of true locality stuff, but you know, I, I at the same time I've done I've done the outcrossing. Um, but it's important to have a, a, a repre- representative group, I think, uh, for each of these locales. Right, right. I don't think there's any shame uh, to be a member of both camps. By any means, right? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, Brian, would you uh, care to comment on your feelings about Buddy's question about maintaining uh, locality uh, lineage uh, tightly, so to speak? Sure. Um, I, I mean, I definitely uh, agree with everything Chuck said, and then you know, kind of in addition to that. Um, you know, when, when I started trying to kind of, you know, build my collection back up and acquire, you know, uh, you know, pure, pure Biak stuff, um, I'm also working with um, a couple of Roos, which I, I want to breed true. Um, you know, I've, I've had a very, very difficult time trying to acquire U.S. captive bred animals, Um like I said before, outside of Rico and Ed Bradley, there really isn't anybody doing it consistently with with Piox. Um, yeah. 
And you, well, and you problem, know what? Well, the problem, oh, Brian, is, and I think you alluded to this, is that BIOC females are so valuable in designer projects that yep. um, I just think, I mean, that you know, in a nutshell, that is uh, that that's the problem, and you probably know that better uh, than anybody on this uh, show or conversation. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie; I've been tempted, <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and and you know, like Chuck said, they're they're so variable. You you really can go any any which way you want with uh, with them, and you can line breed them the same way you do designers, and and come up with some crazy stuff that. That's still just just a biak, um, and and you know the, the kind of the other point I wanted to make is you know while they are still imported, you know pretty regularly, uh, they make up probably the most of of the imported chondros. You know, we we've seen species get you know cut off or severely limited in numbers as far as importation, and you know while it appears you know all, all great right now, uh, you never know when that day is going to come where where it gets cut off, um, you know, a good example of a lot of stuff in, in Madagascar got, got cut off several years ago and a, a lot, you know, a lot fewer things, uh, came in like leaf tail geckos were really hard to get, um, you know, several years ago. So you, you never know when that, when that sort of stuff's going to happen. And, you know, somebody's got to take the initiative to, to get these groups here, you know, established and, and producing, you know, offspring for those that want, you know, the pure stuff here. Um, and you know, we don't, we don't want a situation like in carpets where you don't, where you don't know what, what the hell you have. <laughs> right. Um, right. Um, Good example. It, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And I mean, I, you know, like I said, I think there's, there's enough people that, that are interested in, in pure Biox in particular for, you know, whether to have, pure stuff or to, you know, infuse it into their, you know, dirty designer stuff. <laughs> well, speaking yeah, that, of, that's um, pretty go interesting. I'm going to go off topic. Go ahead, buddy. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I was just going to say I was going to go off topic for a second because we were talking about potential uh, difficulty in obtaining uh, pure locality animals in the future, um, but does anybody on the conversation here have any insight? And this is a question coming from um, our friend Eric Burke, who's a, a big locality uh, fan. What about Cape York uh, availability? You know, when are we going to be able to see some of that stuff uh, coming into the country, if ever? Well, as long as the Australian government. Uh maintains the same same rules I don't think ever. Yeah. Nobody's heard any any uh potential optimistic rumors about any of that stuff lightening up. No. And I think the whole with the with the Marukis coming in, in the past probably, you know, eight to ten years, I think that really satisfied a lot of the hunger for that Cape York stuff. So I don't think that you know, it's as uh, in demand as it once was. That was always the um the, uh, just the trophy on what we wanted was that full, fully striped Maruki or Cape York type animal, and I think with the, the stuff, come, you know, those Maruki animals coming, in, I think that may have um, just helped, like I said, satisfy the the uh, the need or satisfy the uh, hunger for the uh, the Cape York stuff. But I think okay. if it comes in, it's probably not going to be legal. 
<laughs> and, and how would you even know if it was a Cape York or a Maruki? Yeah, exactly. or That means they look pretty similar. Okay. Yep. All right. Yeah, Gary, Australia, uh, yeah, sorry, Bill. Uh, no, go ahead. Australian West. I was going to just, an interesting point, you know, Brian mentioned, yeah, I mean, Australia is not going to loosen up. People don't, one thing people don't realize about Australia is not only that they're so tough about, you know, exporting their flora or fauna, is that they don't want anything imported either. People don't understand how serious they take that as well. I, I recently had in the past uh, six months a fish, New Jersey fishing game officer come to my door because apparently an artifact I had sold to a gentleman out in California somehow made its way into Australia. And uh, pretty wow. serious matter. I mean, I was, I would, they just wanted to, they trade, I mean, I had all paperwork, I was fine, but it was just the idea that, yeah, so I don't see Australia uh, loosening its reins any time in the near future. Mm. So they take that stuff pretty seriously. I, so at least I know oh there's boy, one artifact wanna... floating around in Australia. <laughs> I don't want to get the conversation off track, but I can certainly understand where they would be uh, more concerned about animals coming into their their yeah. island uh, nation than animals leaving. But uh, that that's another conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Gary, what about uh, why don't you go ahead and carry on with the uh, with with Buddy's question about the importance of uh, maintaining the the lineage of locality animals? Yeah. I share a lot of the same thoughts as Brian and Chuck mentioned. You know, I, I don't know if personally I would use the word important as far as, you know, keeping the localities pure. Um, that's up to each individual. Just for me, I mean, I just love, um, you know, just kind of, uh, I, I love the idea of refining, you know, a, a trait in an animal. And that's what, that's what really excites me is to take this pure locality types and just see through generations how pretty I can make them. That's, that's really what um, excites me. So, I'm not really a purist, honestly, uh, uh, as far as locality types. I'm not a purist as far as, even though I uh, give you a hard time, Bill, all the time about sure, those uh, horrific carpondras that you like. You know, I'm really not a purist. It's just this is what excites me, and that's why I, I love doing it. But I will say so uh, with, the, with the Kofi owls, and I do really, I just think that's so important with those animals because I think they're so beautiful. So I'm glad that Chuck is working with them because um, so, to me they're so unique from any other locality type, and I so I love the fact that he's working with those. Well, and Chuck, maybe you can. Um, is it my understanding? And, and you know, we've had Daniel Natusha on the show. Uh, the coffee owls um, are they in more trouble than maybe some of the other locality types uh, in the wild? Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I had had a chance, and uh, one of the the highlights. I didn't get a, a, as much opportunity to socialize as I would like to have had it in Baltimore at ICAST, but I did get to talk to Daniel Matouche for a while, which I really wanted to do, because I knew that he had actually been to the island of Kofiao and, and spent time there, and, uh, you know, it's a very, very small piece of real estate, and uh, it was really, um, I guess, uh, pillaged. Uh, in the in the early and mid 2000s, it was just cleaned out, and right. uh, there were all sorts of stories about uh, hurricanes wiping out the island and big storms and whatnot. But sounded, uh, according to Daniel, it was more of a case of just overcollecting, and uh, hmm. you know he spent uh, either two or three weeks, I think, on the island and uh, did not personally find one Kofi out. <laughs> and 
I think that was a, a personal defeat for him. <laughs> he was very frustrated about that. And uh, but the the native people there were, or at least the the, the uh, semi, I guess, on the the part of the island where most of the the Kofi are found. Um, there's not a permanent um, uh, human population. Uh, the, right. the humans live on the other side of the other island. Uh, but there were people that were familiar enough that they could go out into the into the jungle and come back with animals at the end of the day. But uh, without a doubt, Kofiao are in trouble, and all those imports that came in, and there were a lot of them, um, you know, where are they? I, I, I just don't think, you know, there's a couple of hither and yon, but there's just not a lot. And even the ones I've produced over the last however many years, seven or eight years, uh, as badly as I wanted to track each and every one of them, people disappear. Uh, you know, people right. just flat out disappear, and you can't find them or contact them anymore. Uh, or they have electrical problems where they end up cooking, you know, four of the yearlings they bought from you four years ago. And, uh, you know, there's, there's situations that uh, they die or uh, just one thing or another. But um, right. there's, not, there's not a lot of uh, um, sizable... Uh, you know, continually, uh, continuously uh, pro- productive groups uh, that I'm aware of, and um, and there's not going to be. You know, Daniel said that we would be lucky to see. Uh, I don't remember if he said, uh, you know, maybe a couple of months, one a month, maybe would come in as imports. Um, but there's certainly uh, potential for the for them to just plain be eradicated in the wild, and uh, right. that's a scary, scary thought. And um, kind of takes me to my goal. Gary mentioned a, a goal, and and I tend to like a challenge. And uh, it's like with with temple vipers in the in the in the eighties, no one could keep them alive, and. Uh, I remember Tom Crutchfield saying that he, he didn't believe that males even existed because of all the imports he had gotten. He had never once received a male. And, uh, you know, right there, they had me. I, I had to work with them and figure out what was going on. And, uh, you know, it turns out the male is plenty of males, but males stay little bitty and, and they have the juvenile green pattern. Uh, you know, they don't turn into the big colorful things that the females do. So, uh, you know, they, the, the people who were, were collecting them, they just weren't collecting the males. So none were coming in. Right. And, okay. Uh, but it, it was a, a it, it, and then there was a mandarin rat challenge that I did for a while because people really were having miserable uh, lock breeding the mandarin rats from the Mullendorfs, some of those old world rat species, Alafe species. They're not Alafe anymore, but anyway. Uh, right. Uh, you know, I just like a challenge. And, and then these Kofiao things came in, and there were way more questions than answers. 
And and my goal is to be able to, when somebody says, well, you know, what percentage of them say yellow, I want to be able to answer that question, and I I can't do it yet. Okay. Uh, you know, I, Rico and I, we, we could make a pretty good guess, you know, that 20% or so are going to stay yellow for at least four or five years, maybe for life. Uh, but um, there's just so many questions yet to, to be answered. And, uh, and again, I, I want to refine it because it seems like there's certain lines. Uh, you know, John Lingo got a hold of some really nice uh, imports from those early waves, and his is tended to to hold the yellow uh, better than some of the others. And uh, I've got a couple of Rico's Lingo line, uh, a beautiful five, six-year-old female that I hope is, is uh, I hope the eggs are developing and, and going to be in the nest box in the next couple of weeks. Uh, oh, nice. But she's just as electric yellow as could be. And... Uh, so my goal is to be able to answer questions about these guys with some degree of confidence and, and also, uh, as Gary said, to just refine the locale and, and produce the nicest examples that, that can be produced. Yep, that, what, that's a great goal, Chuck. Um, what about, you know, how, how are you housing and keeping your adult chondros? Uh, probably different than 90% of the people who keep contros. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, I, initially when, uh, when I, uh, got into these guys, I, I live right across the street from a cypress mill and I had used cypress mulch with some of the, uh, the mandarin rats. Uh, and with some of the arboreal pit vipers, and interestingly, I noticed in the, the article in the last Reptiles magazine about uh, the palm viper complex, uh, whoever wrote that article um, you know, was using uh, cypress mulch as a substrate with, uh, with all the various um, uh, palm vipers. But anyway, I, I, I set set these guys up with, uh, I, I microwaved it, uh, I sterilized it, uh, made sure it was not a blend, but 100% cypress mulch, and um, it just, it, it keeps very uh, consistent humidity, uh, you don't get quite the roller coaster that, that you can get with, with some other substrates, um, and uh, it, it settles down and makes a nice, uh, you know, once it's been in there a while, it sort of settles, and uh, it's not as easy as you might think uh, to have them ingest it, uh, as would be the case maybe with other types of, of mulch aspen or, or Santa chips or something like that. Uh, but it's just worked well for me. So my adults go on on pure cypress mulch, and uh, my neos and sub adults uh, are the typical uh, paper towels and a perch and a couple water bowls. Uh, you know, they don't move into the adult setups until you know probably they're at least two years old, um, and uh, I like. 
I, I bought all of Eugene's old Neodesha cubes. They're antiques now, probably officially. Uh, and I I like the uh, the vision, some of the vision units. I can never remember the model number, but uh, uh, that's pretty much my adult setup. Is uh, the Neodesha cubes and the, the three foot uh, wide visions with. Uh, with uh, cypress substrate and uh, birch, a couple water bowls, and, and a live potos. And uh, it's just worked incredibly well for eight years. Chuck, are you, uh, are you using heat panels or ambient temperature or what? I'm probably, your the setup? Only, I'm, I'm probably the only one in the world who has yet to go to heat panels. Uh, I've never owned one. Uh, although I, I, I'm, I'm starting to look at them now and, and appreciate them, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I uh, with my little guys, I've got a, a ambient room temperature. I've got a room that that stays at uh, 82, 84 uh, okay. degrees for the younger guys, and the breeders I have always uh, had the, the uh, dome lights above. Uh, right. for a, a, a warm spot and uh and and of course maintained uh, uh ambient uh range uh that's reasonable in the room while providing a gradient within the cage um, okay but it, it sort of goes back to the you know what you're used to uh, for so many years i used the the overhead dome lighting that it's just hard to transition to something different uh, although I, I I do now feel like the heat panels are probably a better way to go, uh, and uh, eventually I'll I'll make that leap. Well, I think uh, you know one of the common themes that we've been having uh, really a, a plethora of guests on the show in the last six or eight months is that people are trending to keep chondros cooler. Rather than warmer, um, you know, maybe that's just a, a, a recent trend. But um, a lot of the guests are, you know, we've got a lot of guests that don't keep any um, heat grade in at all. You know, if they have a, a dedicated room where they can keep the temperatures 82 degrees, um, they don't, you know, they don't have a heat panel other than a female that's ovulated or something like that. Uh, they don't, they don't supply any uh, supplemental heating. Uh, other than that, and a lot of guests have noticed, and, and I'd just be one in my limited experience, that I've got a room that stays roughly 80 degrees, and I might have my heat panels set at 84, 85, and my chondros are never under the heat panels. They're always at the 82 uh, cool spot. So, you know, I don't think uh, you're doing anything that's really out of the norm for at least the majority of the uh, the keepers that we've communicated with. Yeah, I think that's perfectly perfectly within the norm. And uh, it, the only exception is, you know, when you have those females that are uh, post-ovulation and and you see them under the under the heat source, whether it be a panel or a dome light, you see them uh, under there turning sideways, heating up those eggs. Then then clearly you, you need to have some sort of gradient within the cage. But otherwise, yep. uh, you know, my, my neos and sub-adults do fine in the, the, just the, the, the neo room, I call it, uh, at just uh, 
82, 83. It really it varies from uh, dips down to 80, 79 probably would be an extreme, and then up to 84, 85 would be the other extreme. Uh, okay. And right. with an average, an average of around 83, 84, or 83, I guess, would be about the average. All right, Chuck, very good. I, uh, I was going to say, Chuck, I know I speak for the entire Chondro community when I say you really need to upgrade the heat panels. <laughs> I do, Gary. I do. You want to know something? Here, here's something that will track you up, Gary. Listen to this. I bought I, a listen, smartphone. I don't want to hold you up. You may have to go. Are you churning your own butter tonight? <laughs> yes, I am. Yes. All right. Gary, Gary, I bought a smartphone September 6th of 2014. Okay. I'm holding it Looking in my too. hand. Guess Listen. what I'm talking, guess what I'm talking to you on? You've never sounded better. My, Listen, I'm talking to you on my phone. Next week I want you to order heat panels and take your light bulbs out of your cage and put them back into your <laughs> easy-bake oven. <laughs> You know, didn't, Rico use, didn't Rico use light bulbs? In uh, true no, I don't think he actually, Rico, he, in a lot of them, he didn't have a heat source. In a lot of them, there are panels. And you know what? In a couple of them, there are lights. He actually had all well, three. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but generally, it was either panels or, or ambient. Uh I knew you know it took us all, it took us almost two hours, but I knew we couldn't keep Gary uh, in his box for too long. I'm really not better than that. I'll be honest with you. I, I really, I always got to give Chuck a hard time. You know, it I enjoy it. Work. I enjoy it. Work. I enjoy it more than you know, Gary. I do more than you know. <laughs> I wish. I wish by the Rico way, was... I got. I got to get. I got to get one more thing in for Gary. Uh, okay. you, uh, you know, you you had the experience with incubating uh, 20 years ago. I remember going over to Eugene Buffett in 1981, first time I met him, and he and Dr. Ludwig von Mirop and Tracy Barker were all fretting about these mason jars that had, like, water and pea gravel and moss yeah. And all these like thermal probes and crap in them, and there were chondro eggs in those mason jars. And I remember thinking, "Oh my God, you have got to be kidding!" <laughs> and yeah. they were they they were trying to figure out how to hatch chondro eggs in 1981. That was the beginning of the no substrate. Yeah, they started. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, and I thought, I yeah. thought I I said this is why I have live bearing animals at home. This is why I work with live-bearing species. But I'll never forget. I'll never forget. It was like this meeting of the of the greatest minds, you know, all hovered around this mason jar with all kinds of... Uh, it was like the intensive care unit at the hospital. And, uh, and, and at that time, just, Gary was... At that time, Gary was seven years old. Unfortunately, <laughs> Bill, in 1981... I, you know, it's so funny. I was, thinking, I was 13 years old. I just got my first Burmese python. It's it's a damn, it's great. It really is. It seems like yesterday in some ways. But yeah, 1981, my goodness. My goodness. That makes me feel old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, We've got a long way. We're going to let you slide on that, too. All right. <laughs> and, I, and I wanted to say real quick, before we run out, uh, uh, Brian had mentioned... Uh, 
you know, I've had a Bioc that was just as dog tame. I had it in my class, in my science lab at school, elementary school, and it, it was the most dog tame import Bioc in the world. And it's counterintuitive, but the the Rico's captive bred, captive born Bioc. When we photographed those things, oh my God! Uh, you know, it, it, that was the biggest pain in the butt that I have ever experienced <laughs> trying to photograph those animals. And How, you know, how's you that think, one that I'm about to win on the auction? Right oh, now. oh, it's lovely, Brian. You're, oh, actually, that, <laughs> one, that one's okay. Good answer, no, Tom. that one's okay. That one's okay. But there's a couple coming up that uh, I, I I can't vouch for their temperament. <laughs> Please put that in the ad so that I can get them for cheap. I will. I'll say handle at your own risk on, on those ones. But no, this this guy with the yellow face, he actually wasn't too bad, I don't think. But uh, it's it weird. You, it, it, it's so counterintuitive. Is Brian bidding <laughs> on the auction during the show? Oh yeah, I'm not I'm, during the show. I'm always uh, watching. Well, I don't know. <laughs> you, can I can I make I'll a suggestion the for the next round that you uh, that you install a buy it now option like on eBay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, Brian and and Gary both have helped make this thing happen, and oh. uh, it, it really uh, it it's taken a huge group effort to make this thing happen, and uh, I appreciate both of them a lot. Even though Gary gives me crap all the time, and I love it. Uh, I, I appreciate it. You're, uh, you're, you've done them seriously. We've all will say with Chuck, you did really an amazing job with this auction. I know you've an uh, amazing well, friend, man. I, I can't, I just can't imagine how much work you put into this with Darlene, but you did an amazing job with it. So I'm uh, really proud of you. Rico, Rico, and Rico, Rico was an amazing friend that uh, you know gave me a key to his apartment for a year and a half, and uh, you know he he was a unique person, as you guys know. Uh, they, there are no nicer people on the planet, just generally good human beings. And uh, Darlene, I, I've known since they met, and, um, you know, it's something that had to be done, you know, regardless of, uh, of uh, yeah, it, it's difficult, and it was time, it's time-consuming and all that, but it, it was necessary. And uh, thank goodness we have this incredible community that uh, jumps in and helps, um, you know, because in a lot of uh, the, the legal Python community, you probably wouldn't get a whole lot of support. <laughs> but uh, I shouldn't say that. That was a bad thing to say. Here's something very Probably some very good ball python guys out there, I know. Bill's a good one. Bill's oh, a good yeah, one. Yeah. yeah, for sure. There are good guys out. But the, the Chondro community is definitely one of the most close-knit, I-got-your-back type communities that I've ever come across. Yeah, no no doubt about it. It's uh, it's a very unique community and uh, yeah, just, just a great, great one to be a part of. Yeah, unique is the perfect perfect word, and uh, and uh, and also another thing, real quick, that Gary said about refining, and getting the nicest example. It kind of I immediately thought of corn snakes. There's nothing more beautiful than an Okatee corn snake that's pure, not het for anything, no no mutant genes in it. 
just a naturally occurring Okatee corn snake. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of, that comes to mind when I think of some of these, these chondro, locality chondros. Uh, it would be nice if we could have just a pinnacle of example, uh, examples for each of these locales. Uh, if there's enough people and enough interest uh, to do locality breeding so that we have the luxury of, of being able to say, here's, here's what a, 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 you know, our fact should look like or could, can look like. Um, just like an Okatee corn is just a quintessential example of a corn snake. Uh, but anyway, that, that's a little off topic. It's okay. We well, like off uh, topic. We we do. We mm-hmm. like off topic. Uh, let's move into the 21st century uh, uh, housing keeping. Maybe uh, Brian, do you want to <laughs> talk about a few minutes? Um, since Chuck's busy turning his butter, uh, maybe about how you how you keep your chondros. Well, I do use heat panels, but everything else is probably different. Um, I use, uh, well, for the cages I use, I have kind of a mishmash. I use H- HP or HDP or wh- whatever it is. Uh, I use those, PVC, and I have some acrylic cages. Um, I tend to prefer the HPDE just because it doesn't off-gas and doesn't scratch like acrylic. Um, right. Uh, for, the, for my adult females, I have... Uh, 30 inch by 20 inch by I think they're 20 inch 21 inch high um, and then I have a couple 24 inch cubes and then for the males I have some smaller cubes like 20 to 24 inch cubes um, and I have more naturalistic displays um, I use bioactive substrate consisting of um, clay pellets for drainage and a mix of organic soil, which is, you know, free of fertilizers and things like that, and uh, sphagnum moss. Um, mm, nice. And then that I seed with uh, springtails, isopods, and, you know, other other small insects that, uh, that assist in, like, the decomposition of, of any waste, and, you know, they assist in the health of the substrate and, uh, and the live plants that I have. Um Man. So you use large water bags. Like What's that? I'm sorry. It sounds like an article, Brian. You need to write an article about this. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe one day. I I uh, I'm pretty busy in my in my you know my job. I I do saltwater fish also. Um, there's only enough you know there's only enough time in the day for so many things. But uh, maybe Ooh, one day. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, what a great setup. Uh, yeah, yeah, I uh, I have pretty large water bowls in there. Um, they're roughly probably like eight inch diameter, four inch high. Um, which I, you know, fill you know two to three times a week. It helps with uh, maintaining humidity, um, which is important for all the live plants. You know, it, it's I, I often have a harder time keeping the plants doing well than the chondros, honestly. Um, and, uh, the, the, probably the, the big parts I differ on husbandry than most people is I, I do a lot of seasonal stuff. 
So, like, I, I miss seasonally, uh, depending on what's going on with the weather, you know, here in South Florida. Um, currently, we're kind of getting into the more rainy season. So, in the past few weeks, I'm missing around three to five days a week, sometimes seven, depending on, um, you know, when low-pressure systems are rolling through through my area. Uh, during the drier months, I missed only kind of as necessary keep the substrate and plants healthy and things like that. Um, and this kind of, you know, that kind of also relates to my feeding schedule, which is also seasonal. So, you know, when um, I'm feeding less frequently during drier months, so the snakes kind of require less water for their you know, daily metabolic processes and everything because they're, they're eating less. Um, so I'm not misting quite as frequently. Uh, you know, I I feed the females every three to five weeks during the drier months, which generally is like November to March, and then every 10 to 14 days during the the wetter months, which is, you know, now through August, September. Um, and the males, I, I kind of feed every four to five weeks, regardless of season. Um, and I only feed mice. Uh, I only feed one adult mouse per feeding for adults, sub-adults. Um, and I generally shoot for a feeding schedule that results in a defecation within about a week, a week to 10 days or so of the feeding. Um, the current method that I'm using, you know, that current schedule that I'm using generally gives that result. And I've noticed on my females that if I, you know, if I feed more frequently than maybe every two weeks or so, um, for more than a few feedings in a row that the time between the meal and the defecation begins to lengthen. So it might be mm. two weeks or three weeks before a defecation. So I, mm. I kind of strive to have a defecation before uh, I'm feeding that next meal. And it, it seems to keep them a little more active. It doesn't, you know, they don't get backed up. They don't tail hang, anything like that. Um, right. So... That, that's kind of what I've switched to in the past year or two, and it seems to be working out well. Um, for temperatures, I keep my females um, around 78 to 84, 85 most of the year. Um, males, I keep slightly cooler at that, like, 78 to 82 that, uh, that Terry kind of made famous. Um, mm -hmm. It seems like, seems like the males like a little bit cooler um, that I've noticed. Uh, probably because they're not eating as frequently. Um, and, you know, the, the temperature doesn't change as much, um, you know, here in, in Florida. I'm sure Chuck can attest, although I think you're a little bit more north Florida. Um, but, uh, you know, outside of January, February, the temperature's pretty much, you know, consistent in my room. So uh, those temps are pretty consistent. So, um, as far as breeding goes, um, I'm kind of looking forward to the challenge of, of figuring that out as far as cycling goes and, and everything like that. Um, I've got a, a few few ideas of how to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, Kristen Stewart has been a, a big help in trying to troubleshoot that. Um, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. I think I'll have a couple pairings going this, this year and I'll – you know, try out a few things, but that—that's kind of basically how how I do it here. 
Nice. You know, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, kind of Buddy and I and our theme is is there's no one way to do things right in keeping any kind of animals, uh, particularly chondros, but we do like to follow uh, recent trends or maybe what has worked well for uh, quite a few successful keepers and breeders. And along with the keeping uh, animals that may be a little bit cooler, um, you know, than it has been done in the past, the the uh, habit of feeding mice over rats seems to be more popular uh, and also feeding meals uh, less frequently and keeping your animals leaner seems to be a, a popular uh, common theme in successful husbandry so yeah absolutely and uh and you know my my methods for the way i keep are more um just things that interest me and i'm keeping a a fairly small collection of you know around eight to ten animals so um if you're keeping you know 60 70 100 plus then the way i do it is most likely not feasible. Um gonna work, right? But but I, I certainly get a lot of enjoyment out of it for for the few animals I am able to fit. Well, well buddy, you you have a hundred chondros, so why don't you uh, tell the <laughs> listeners how you keep them? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Some days it feels like a hundred. Not that many, no way. <laughs> uh, come I do on. this for fun. You were- Right. <laughs> Tell the truth. <laughs> Tell the truth. <laughs> let's uh, oh, let's get Gary's let's get let's get Gary's um, input about his husband. Yeah, I'm, I'm. You know, honestly, I'm I'm pretty textbook as far as husbandry. You know, my females 36 inch enclo- 36 by 24 24 enclosures. The males 24 inch cubes. Um, high times the highest I'll go is 84.5 degrees. That's definitely come down a couple degrees over the past few years. Yeah, I'm yep. trying to be far more um, attentive to now to, you know, feeding schedules and, and what I'm feeding and those types of um, things that are just so important that, um, you know, we're constantly tweaking. And, um, you know, I love that we're all talking about these things because, you know, I'm constantly learning as well, just what Brian had mentioned earlier about the tail hanging in females and feeding less frequently. These are things that are starting to come to light now, um, you know, more over the last couple of years. We're definitely paying more attention to that. Um yeah, I will say that, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but it seems that the less chondros I keep, I have a small collection. I probably have maybe now 20, low, low 20s, 25 animals maybe. I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but I always say the less animals I have, the less problems I have, and the more babies I produce. I could be just more attentive to what I have. But yeah. uh, you know, one, so one trend that I, I definitely want to go towards, I know it's more time-consuming, but I love the idea of what Brian had just mentioned, too, about I want to go more naturalistic. You know, when I see these posts on uh, Facebook, I think, is it Michael Sersnack? I don't know that's the gentleman's name. He's out mm-hmm. in Australia. Yeah. He keeps his animals outside. Yeah. And I he was say, our wow, last you guest. Know, like, what's that? He was our last guest. Oh, he was the last show. guest? Okay. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, what, I, what it comes down to me is that I say to myself, yes, even though we can keep these animals in sterile conditions, even though we can keep them in small enclosures and we can get as many as we can in, in, a, in a room for our convenience, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean we should do that, you know. So, I don't know, I'm, after keeping all these years, I really am starting to be more conscious of, uh, you know, maybe more foliage and, and things of that nature. So, um, but as of this as, as of this moment, I'm, like I said, I'm textbook, newspaper, substrate, I do not miss my enclosures. 
I only miss my neonates. Heat panels, 83 degrees on the high end. Uh, my enclosures probably will drop down to just uh, probably just below 80, 79 point something. It's tough, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a small room to get everything, uh, to get it below 80 degrees sometimes. But um, so that's pretty much it for me. Yeah, the the misting is something that we always ask uh, guests about um, the mist, do not mist, and and it seems especially when we have a round table. We the, the last round table we did was a all female, and we got we had three uh, wonderful ladies on the show, and we had opinions varying from we missed religiously twice a day to we wow. never missed, and um, it's just very uh, interesting. I think it it just falls perfectly into that category of you have to know your animals. You have to know your conditions, your husbandry, you know where you live in the country, your room. Uh, read the animals. But uh, for somebody to say you should mist every day or you should never mist, I think that's a big misconception. You just you have to know your conditions and you have to know your animals. I'll say one thing about misting. I don't know what your experience is, but I don't miss my adult enclosures or my adults at all. But my babies, I missed every single morning. You know, I literally will put the spray bottle right up. I'll give them two or three quick spurts. And I define a baby, anything up from a from a hatchling to up to a year old. And knock on wood, I have not had a prolapse since I started keeping those animals more better hydrated by spraying. So that, that's been my experience with babies. But other than that, I don't miss anything else. Anybody else? Uh, Very good. Anybody else want to comment on their misting? Uh, I mean, the, the the main reason I I do it is for the help of the of of the systems that I'm that I'm keeping in my enclosures, um, and then outside of that, I kind of do it uh, as part of my cycling regimen. Um, since I don't, I, I'm not able to do as much of a temperature drop as you know you guys in the the Northeast, and uh, you know I'm sure Bill, you even get a, a pretty significant drop in temperature in Texas. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, that down here it's, you know, 70s at night most of the year. Um, so I, I don't really have as much of an ability to do that. So I'll, I'm kind of tinkering with, uh, with the misting as another way to cycle, cycle. cycle throughout yeah, the year. Yeah, as far as the misting goes, if I can throw throw something in there. Um, like Bryant, well, first of all, we all seem to have small collections, and I agree with Gary. I, I see 30 is my max for years has always been my maximum number of animals. And actually, when I'm under that, when I'm more like 20 full-time animals or less, I tend to have less problems and more offspring. And, uh, and, and like Brian said, I couldn't do I couldn't do the adult setups the way that I do them if I had a hundred animals or or you know a, a huge collection. Uh, but as far as misting goes, I I, I missed my pothos. They they're just almost impossible to kill, and uh, the the condors love them. Uh, but I I missed my my uh, pothos and it, it, they're sort of uh, sunken into the cypress mulch, so it drains out of the bottom, and so there's sort of a, 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 a radius around the the pot there where beneath the surface the mulch is moist under there, 
and mm-hmm. um, it's it's. I don't do all that. I don't really miss. I don't miss the snakes except for the little guys, which same as Gary. Uh, but I do miss the the surface of the mulch every now and then, maybe once a week, maybe every two weeks. But I know that if I keep the pothos watered, I know that there's a little bit of moisture beneath the surface, and it, it keeps the humidity at a pretty pretty uh pretty good level but then again of course i live in florida even though it's north florida uh you know i have a we have fairly good amount of humidity versus guys who live in new jersey or new york or maine or somewhere like that they they would face a whole different set of problems but uh and the other thing with respect to misting i was going to throw in there that you know brian mentioned uh I, I've been told over so many years by so many different people that uh, a change a lot of times is the key to, to, to getting reproductive success. And it can be a change in the frequency of misting, a change in temps, uh, a change in feeding uh, frequency, uh, sometimes even the location of the cage. Uh, right, but just just a change of some sort, whether it's whether it's the amount of uh, of misting or or slight changes in temperature, seasonal changes. Uh, I, I I liked Brian's uh, or, uh, yeah Brian's uh, de- description of his uh, regime there as far as uh, having a, a seasonal type uh, regimen, because um, I think that that's sort of the key. And uh, Fred Antonio is somebody with the Orient Society. He's, he's down near the Central Florida Zoo, and they do an enormous amount of work with outdoor breeding of various species. But uh, the Orient Society started out being about the indigo, but I know Fred has bred uh, Bushmasters outdoors, uh, that, uh, with the muda, the snake Bushmaster, uh, Diamondbacks, pine snakes, uh, many different species in outdoor enclosures, which uh, it's really interesting to go down there and because there's not that many people that attempt to breed snakes outdoors. And um, yeah, it's real interesting to go look at those setups and, and the results that, that they get because mm-hmm. they're incredibly successful with uh, the species they work with and you know, how chondros would do outdoors, I don't know, but it would be interesting. Uh, you know, Brian lives in a place where you might actually be able to experiment with that a little bit. Um, in North Florida, we do get uh, we get cold in, in November through February. Uh, you know, we can drop into the 30s at any time at night. Um, hmm. It's not that common, but it can happen. And, and without a doubt, in December and January, we're going to have several freezes. Uh, but in South Florida, you could do quite a bit um, as far as experimenting with outdoor uh, enclosures. And I think that would be a, a fantastic, neat experiment. But I like the idea of keeping the numbers low, uh, which seems to be a common theme here tonight. Right. Um, uh, Chuck, if I could, I just want to let everyone know it's listening live that 
we are going to end our live broadcast in about one minute. And I'm assuming our guests are going to stay with us and we'll continue recording for the final hour of the show. So I just wanted to put that out there real quick in case someone's new to the show and listening to it live. Um, you'll be able to download the podcast tomorrow and listen to the remainder of the show as a recording. Sorry, Chuck, go ahead. Oh no, no worries. I hope I didn't. Uh, I didn't want to take up too much time there. Uh, Are you happy? But, Chuck, uh, it's like an hour past uh, eleven o'clock. Man, uh, Gary, <laughs> give, give, give it a rest up there. All right. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Gary's you need getting to talk grumpy. More, Gary. Yeah. Chuck, it's, listen, it's okay. Brian and I wanted to talk a little bit also. Brian, you okay with that? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> okay. uh, Gary, carry on up there. You know. Please take some thoughts on Let's let's so so we had Michael Cermak on who did our last show and he keeps his condors outside for most of the year. Um and so have any of you kept your condors outside or have you ever thought about it? Uh, well, where I mean I he, yeah. Where did he live? Right? If I can uh, Michael uh, is well, in Australia, yeah, and oh, okay. he's in Northern Australia, but not the Cape York region. So yeah. I, th- I think he's a little bit further east, um, but he keeps he does keep them outside. Okay, I, I wonder what the temperature extremes are in in his uh, his part of Australia. I have no idea what sort of temperatures he would deal with. Right. Um, yeah, it's. I can't remember offhand, but it's it's fairly tr- it's fairly tropical. I'd, I'd imagine it'd be like South Florida, maybe a little bit warmer. Right. Brian, ha- have you ever yeah. thought about keeping condors outside? Uh, definitely. And once once I have a, a house with a yard, it's, it's definitely something I'm gonna gonna you know play with. Um, when I was working at the Larry Park Zoo in Tampa, we we did have a pair that stayed outside most of the year. Um, they would start to court and copulate around like October, November. Um, but then, you know, near the end of November, early December, the nighttime lows would, would start to dip a little too low and we'd have to bring them inside. So, um, while I was there, we only ever got slugs from them, um, which I wouldn't be surprised if it was because we, you know, took them inside and they, they changed enclosures and everything. So it was fairly stressful, I would imagine. Um, but, uh, it, it's definitely something I want to do once, once I have the, uh, you know, the, uh, the ability to with my, with my own yard, um, down here, uh, you know, it really, we might get a, a couple nights to go down into the forties or fifties, but that n- nothing, uh, nothing crazy extreme. Mo- most of the year it's in, you know, the low to mid seventies at night. So, uh, okay. yeah, it's definitely something sounds, I'll do at some point. Um, sounds perfect, Brian. Sounds perfect. Yeah. 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 yeah so ho- hopefully I can just put them outside not, not think about them and they'll just do all, you know, they'll do their thing and then I'll come grab the babies. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm in Brian, New Jersey, where, guys. Where are, Brian, where are you in Florida? Fort Lauderdale. Okay, I know I, I've asked you that probably three times, but I'll remember it this time. There you go. 
And I, I know that area well because my grandmother from New Jersey lived in uh, Lighthouse Point, and uh, that's just north of Fort Lauderdale. So it's uh, boy, that would be yeah, an ideal place. Fifteen minutes away. Yeah, that'd be I, I an ideal place. I think everybody's grandmother from New Jersey lives in Fort Lauderdale, yeah. don't they? I bet. Probably Gary's. I imagine Gary's grandmother lives in in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> just keep my grandmother out of this, Chuck. <laughs> Gary, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Um, oh, yeah, what, what, what they call it? God's waiting room, right? Is that what they call it down there? Yeah, uh, that's what they call it. Exactly. You know, I just was going to say that. Comedy, yeah. there, there's a lot of comedy clubs geared towards yeah. the elderly down there. You know, Gary. My keep my my key, my, my key audience. Think, thinking ahead. Right. You know, I was just going to say one thing about how we're always learning with the, with these animals and how we, we still have so far to go is with Michael Cermak. I, I don't know if it was on your show that he mentioned or I just had seen a video of him talking about it. I, I'm in New Jersey, obviously I can't keep my animals outside, but, you know, for years we always said about chondros, you know, no matter how many perches you put in there, in their enclosure, they're always going to go to the highest perch. And he basically said, well, that's just not accurate. He said if you gave the animal, you know, because he keeps his animals outside, and he gives them so many options as far as perching. But he said, you know, a lot of times they'll go in the lowest perch, or typically it's the perch with foliage next to it, so the animal is able to use the foliage as basically a hide yeah. spot. And that's that made true. perfect sense. And that's why they were going to the top of the enclosures, because the, they're basically substituting the foliage for the top of the enclosure. So, you know, it's, when I hear things like that, I feel, wow, man, I'm, you know, I, I'm not putting this on anybody else, but I say to myself, God, you know, I'm really selfish with these animals. I'm keeping them. It's just most convenient for me, but... Um, you know, just that's what I thought about going more naturalistic and adding some foliage because these animals, as we know, are really found closer to the ground than than way high in trees. You know, they're they're um, yeah. preying on rodents in the wild and not birds, and uh, so it makes sense they would go, you know hide low to the ground under foliage. So anyway, Gary, you know what's uh, what was interesting also from his uh, show was that you know, and like you said, he presents his animals with a lot of different perching options. But uh, he has noticed, and he had several pictures of a lot of his animals choose vertical perches as opposed to horizontal ones. That's amazing. Yeah. See, that's. Yeah. When you hear things like that, you, you say, "Wow, man, am I really meeting these animals' needs and expectations?" You know. I mean, it's it's safe. I feel a little guilty about it, honestly. So, um, it's it's kind of like I'm, I'm a big parrot enthusiast too. I love parrots. I was over in Australia, and it was the first time I'd seen these cockatoos sitting on telephone wires flying free and it was from that moment on i said i'll never keep a bird in a cage again when i hear things like yeah. michael you know speaking and i see his enclosures i say god i, I have these things in 36 you know these 24 inch uh, pvc boxes i just you know it's like yep. wow i want to start have to maybe start uh going more towards like brian's way in the naturalistic i just i don't know i like that well i i can definitely confirm that they they definitely prefer having some sort of foliage between you and where they're perching. Um, yeah. And be, because of that, I generally try to put as much foliage between me and snake as possible so that they can go from side to side depending on what sort of heat they want while also still being, you know, feeling like they're not being seen. Because, um, mm. uh, yeah. you know, i I've heard I've heard the argument before that if you put foliage in there, they won't thermoregulate. Um, but when you actually look at what people are doing, they put the foliage in one section of the cage, and so they're mm -hmm. picking to hide behind the foliage as opposed to thermoregulating. 
But if you provide that across the entire cage, they'll do as they please, and you know, hopefully they're a little less stre- a little less stressed while they're doing it. Yeah, that makes sense. And just to just to make it a trifecta, I have seen the the uh, the not the highest perch thing in action where. Uh, you know, I tend to guide the pothos up with the, onto the perches, and of course, pothos grow everywhere in every direction. And uh, uh, inevitably, I, I've got multiple kofiao that will choose not the highest perch, but they'll choose the one that has the pothos, uh, you know, go, going across it. Uh, and and I, I I either have one big one that has little tendrils going in every direction. Or uh, you know, two smaller ones, so that there's more than one option uh, to to lay with the foliage. And there's no question uh, that they are they are comforted by that uh, the live plant. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, I I take it down to bare root, and I microwave my uh, my soil, my uh, sphagnum moss, and uh, I do everything possible to kill every organi- organism, which may not be the thing to do, which is why I want to learn more about what Brian's doing, uh, because I try and sterilize absolutely everything I put in there, uh, which is, is sort of uh, sort of odd since I'm trying to do a naturalistic environment and yet have it completely sterile. Um, <laughs> Sort of an oxymoron thing going on there, but uh, without a doubt, the plants provide security, and security is good. Agreed. Minimize stress. Very good. Let's. Um, you know, we had a few things on a few other things on the list we wanted to talk about. Uh, we're getting uh, pretty deep into the recorded. Uh, hour here, so let's talk about um, establishing neonates. Um, Gary, maybe why don't you start us out with um, kind of what you're, I mean, you could take us through if you want to start with incubation. Sure, Bill, I go no substitute. Again, you know, most of the stuff I do, I, I really give credit to the guys who've done it before me. Um, I go no substrate. You know, I always say, you know, no, no substrate. Um, um, 87.4 degrees, um, and, um, you know, typical 49, 50 days, the eggs are pipping. Uh, after my Here's first the, egg uh, pip. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but are you measuring um, chamber temperature or incubator temperature, or is, is it the same chamber. when you incubate? I do. No, I do. I do uh, actually just my, my – I stick my probe right in front of my fan, basically. And I, don't, I, um, I do put a couple um, – so yeah, my probe is basically right in front of my fan. So I just go by incubator incubator temperature. I don't put I don't my probe's not in with in the egg chamber. In the eggs. Okay. Okay. I think, I think Jason Stevens for that. Jason Stevens told me that about three four years ago. It changed everything for me as far as incubating. Okay. Um, but in any event, yeah. So I usually you know after my first egg pips, I'll typically wait. You know I was so against pipping at at, at first, and now um, I mean within. I will tell you probably five, six hours of the first egg pip, and I'll go through and pip them all, and then I'll just leave them. Um, okay. You know, I, I wait for, for – I know there was just a recently a thread in the MVF about how long do you wait to try to feed the neonates. I wait until after the first shed. And okay. um, I just do – from from the get-go, what I do is I, I try live pinky mice, 
and I take a bunch of chick down and I put it in a deli cup and I for about two hours I leave all those live pinkies in the in with the uh, chick down just marinating if you will, and they're just okay. in that for a couple hours and that's my first feeding attempt. It may or may and, not uh, help. And, and Gary, do you present those live pinks to tongs or you just throw tongs. them in the tub? Yeah, tongs. tongs. Yeah, I, I never. Okay. Yeah, just tongs, teasing the hell out of the babies, um, okay. teasing them until they run basically until they run and when they run I just go right back at them. And okay. then um so if I if I don't have any luck doing that then I will uh, the, the second feeding attempt which will be typically be 4 or 5 days later I'll go with frozen thawed pinky mice that were uh soaking in you know warm water. Um I don't even try to check down scent after that. Sometimes I do, sometimes I I find if it's you know, I don't know, it's about 50% with the check down, but um you know, typically I'll have, if I have a clutch of a dozen babies, and if I'm lucky enough to have, say, I mean, sometimes all of them will eat, but realistically I'll have at least, you know, two or three out of every 12 not feeding. Um, I'll typically will not wait more than probably three to four weeks before I'll start with the pinky heads. In fact, my okay. one clutch I had so far this year, I have one baby that honestly it just, you know, as you guys know, it just takes the patience of a saint. My God, I'm just getting so frustrated with this animal. Send it to Bitey. Send it to Bitey. Pinky heads. Yep. I got pinky heads. <laughs> but you know what? The whole thing with the pinky heads, is, and the thing I'll say is that, you know, it, it's definitely not a, um, it's definitely a means to an end. I mean, you can't, a baby will not survive just on pinky heads alone. They will start to, you'll start, they really will start to thin out a little bit. Let's just start feeding them more frequently. So what I'll do is after about three pinky heads, four pinky heads, I'll do a whole pinky. Um, okay. But, yeah, uh, no secrets, just patience. And I think, uh, you know, what you feed is, is at least as equally important to technique. You know, I always say I'm not good at many things in life, but I can get baby chondros to eat. It's something I, I tend to be pretty good at. But every once in a while I have a baby like the one right now. Maybe I will send it down to Buddy so he can work his magic on it. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Uh, very good. Uh, Chuck, do you want to yeah. step in and uh, go through yeah, the same stuff? I'm pretty, I'm pretty much right there with Gary. I, I, I'm not that good at, at all that many things either, but having gotten uh, little eyelash vipers, which are way smaller than little chondros, <laughs> and, and little uh, lateralis and a lot of those larval pit vipers to eat, uh I can get a chondro to eat, and, and Gary's right. You can't uh, you can't uh, maintain it on pinky heads. You've got to you've got to just use that as means to to the end. And fortunately, I've never had to go uh, to the point where I had to assist whole pinks because usually after a couple pink heads, I can get them to to go ahead and take a whole pink on their own. But uh, one thing I, I, I do, I, I don't do the, uh, the um, uh, down feathers. I do, I, but I always do uh, thaw and then dip in uh, hot water and then let it cool for a minute so that it's nice and warm, like a like a fresh gill or even a little bit warmer. And uh, I find that they not only get a little bit of extra hydration there, but uh, they definitely key in on that that. Uh, heated food item rather than a, a cold thawed pink. Um, right. And and with those little runners, after they get through running like like hell, I put the lid back on. Uh, I resist throwing them against the wall like a spaghetti noodle <laughs> to see if it sticks. 
and uh, I, after 10 minutes, I go back, and by then they're perched again, and we try it again. And a lot of times they'll run uh, the first time, maybe the second time. You let them perch a third time, and now you're 30 minutes down the road, and the third time they'll they'll actually start striking at it. Um, so, yeah, it's a matter of, of patience of a saint, which which I do have patience. That's one thing I have. Um, can't can't teach little kids without an enormous amount of patience. Um, but, uh, and yeah, I do manually tip after the first heads come out. I, I manually tip because the first two years uh, that I had Kofiow, exactly fifty percent of my eggs were hatching, and the other uh, the other half I got a clutch of twenty eggs, ten. Ten little guys came out, ten little guys didn't, and, and three or four days later I'd cut them open and find a fully developed, colored up, uh, pigmented, uh, non-living little chondro in there. And, and I, don't know, I don't know if they failed to develop an egg tooth or if the eggs were just too, uh, too, um, uh, yeah, yeah, too uh, dense for them to cut through. I don't know what the deal was, but it uh, it happened uh, with two clutches, and and hmm. then of course I called Rico and told him what was going on and said what what do I do with these things? And he said, well, as soon as you see a head, you know, manually tip them all. And ever since that's what I've done, and and there went that problem, but. Uh, and it doesn't seem to do any harm. I don't think the manual tipping does any harm. I don't think I've ever lost any due to that. Uh, but I know that I've lost some by not doing it. Um, right. So I certainly uh, will always, once, once that first round of heads comes through, I, I'm going to go ahead and, and snip all my eggs. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm, patience is the key. And uh, yeah, uh, uh, Gary, we should have like a uh, we should have like a an impossible feeder contest. Yeah. That would be fun. And swap them out. Like <laughs> the yours off yeah, the swap, yeah, swap yeah, it fun. around. See who can get the thing to eat. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be it's awesome. brutal. It's brutal. That'd be brutal. Yeah, yeah. See who runs out of patience first and stomps yeah. on it. Right. <laughs> No, seriously, uh, I've never stopped on one or thrown one. <laughs> Brian, uh, you wanna you wanna add your two cents into uh into the uh establishing neonates? Uh I mean as far as establishing I don't I don't really have much to add beyond what, what they said. I mean uh, like like they said I'll re- reiterate patience goes a long way with establishing and any species. Um I I've read Quite a few species, other than chondros, and they all they all have their quirks, and they they can all be a, a pain in the ass, frankly. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, where, where I may differ is that I'm I'm kind of looking to uh, explore maternal incubation um, quite a bit. Um, we'll we'll see how it goes. Um, I, you know, obviously chondros don't normally do what you want them to do. Uh, but you know, I I kind of get a kick out of out of figuring out w- what they what they really want and you know what the 
what an ideal nesting site or material might be that you know promotes them to 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 do it the way they're they're supposed to do it um and you know incubate a clutch to term without without any issues or without abandoning the clutch or anything like that um so yeah that i mean that that's where i think i might differ a little bit but as far as establishing neonates it's uh patience 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 and look look to what the guys who have been doing it far longer than us have done um and you know they they've got it down pat yeah learn from their successes and failures absolutely agreed agreed yep buddy what else okay let's um bill bill was uh at a pretty big reptile show recently, and he he noticed there was a. I'm sorry, one of our friends. Don't make me. Who is? Don't make me get on my soapbox again. But go ahead. Yes, yes. So we were talking about uh, uh, the lack of chondro breeders at larger national quality reptile shows, and I can admit, yeah. I for one don't go to very many reptile shows, and I'm guilty of it. I'm just curious what your thoughts of it are. Some people have said that, you know, they don't go because they 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 don't want someone to purchase a chondro as an impulse, and other people think it's good to go to show people that you know you can purchase captive bred chondros here in the states, and we should be directing people towards the breeders. Um, so just just curious what your thoughts are with that. Interesting. You, you can start us off, Chuck. Or, or well, there's without a doubt, uh, and the main show that I've done uh, in the past has been the Expo in Daytona because it's close, and it, it used to be uh, a really big show that uh, people came from far and wide, and uh, the coalition was there, and uh, it, it was the place to be, but uh, that's changed a little bit over the years, and... Uh, for sure, there are there are condos are not well represented anymore. Even in Daytona last year, I don't think there were more than uh, I'm trying to think of one uh, a really uh, uh, established captive breeder of condos that was set up there. I, I'm not even sure there was one other than me. And uh, hmm. you know, on the yeah. one hand, you have to compete with uh, with um, you know the supposedly captive-born, captive-bred, probably farm, import, whatever, uh, that are being sold by, uh, I won't mention the names, but one of them is like beneath the ground or something like that, and, uh, (laughs) you know, then somebody or other, you know, those type of places. Uh, They've all got chondros for, you know, 300 bucks, 350 bucks, and... um, you do have a lot of the people that will buy them that have absolutely no experience with chondros. Um, and and I can understand the people who don't want to be there, uh, either for reasons you mentioned or or for uh, to expose your animals to potential pathogens. Mm-hmm. Um, I can understand the reasons for not being there, and I can also understand the, the need to have some representation there. Uh, 
because uh, it, it was nice when uh, uh, there were multiple uh, really uh, uh, well-established, um, you know, best practices type chondro breeders set up there. Um, it was a much better show. <laughs> Certainly, I thought so. But, no, the uh, only thing okay. worse, Chuck, and the only thing worse than having a bunch of buyers that don't know anything about chondros is having sellers at the show that don't know anything about chondros. Oh, yeah. Amen. Amen. You know, and in the show that uh, Buddy was talking about, that was the NARBC in Tinley, this, uh, the last time they had the show there. And, you know, that's one of the top four or five reptile, at least attendance-wise and vendor-wise, shows in the country. And there wasn't a oh, was that single. The spring? the spring or the fall? Uh, uh, it was the last one, so I guess that would have been the, the fall, fall spring. show. That would be the uh, spring. Shows. And the spring is the, oh, spring. the, spring the, spring is show. the fall. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think the fall show is the bigger of the two, right? Yeah. I, I, I've I'm never attended a... the show, so I, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't either, um, but based on what, what Rico had told me, the fall Tinley show was the big one. And, uh, you know, the spring Tinley was, you know, a, a smaller version of it. Uh, but I've never been there either, so I, I can't tell you firsthand one, one way or the other. But, um, yes, I can envision some some vendors selling chondros that would know nothing about them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They're being totally absent, at, you know, altogether. Yeah, I mean, it, it, not only not only does it do it does nothing to help promote our community or the animals. It it does the opposite to have those yeah. people there with their animals and not have uh, true representation. Uh, yeah. We're going backwards. You know, we're taking steps yeah. backwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you know. Um, my whole take on the show is I, I, my, you know, purely economical for me because, quite frankly, I just don't produce that many animals, and I just that's really what it comes down to for me. I can't even, you know, really justify a booth. When I think back, though, in the heyday with the, the Tinley show, and especially in, in the fall show, and I had been there when the Chondro Coalition was there. I don't know if they were calling it at that time, but I know Rico was part of it, and Terry Phillips, and and Chris, who's uh, I can't think of Chris's last name right now, and Marshall Mendez. You know, Mar- Rico was pretty much the anchor store, if you, if you think of him in that way. Like, Rico was the one full-time guy producing a lot of animals, so he filled up 50% of the booth. And the other four guys, you know, Marshall and Chris and Terry and was somebody else, they basically made up the other 50% of the booth. So, theoretically, you know, each, you know, except for Rico, the other four really didn't produce that many animals. So I think, I don't know, it's just... Um, it's, is there any one person you guys could think of right now who's just producing that many captive bird animals to, you know, more than a, one or two clutches a year right now to even, you know, fill a table? Like, that's what I'm really trying to even think of right now. You know, Rico is that guy. So, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, and it's not just that. It's, you know, you can't bring a bunch of $1,200 animals right. to yeah. a show and expect to, you know, yeah. Expect to sell a bunch of animals. You, you know, you've got to have a, a variety of animals. You've right. got to have locality. You've got to have beginner type animals. Yep. Uh, you know, and yep. so. Yep. Well, and, I like Ryan. It's a, it's a, oh, no, go ahead. No, go Brian, Brian. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, well, and I mean, there's there's also a, a cost benefit analysis you kind of have to do. Where it, is it worth it to to put the you know 
baby chondros through that much stress for maybe, mm-hmm. you, you know, a, a one or two of them sell because, I mean, they are a higher-end animal. And uh, the reality is, you know, most people that go to shows aren't looking to spend, you know, that, that kind of money. Um, and so you you can just as easily book, not move your animals from their from their tubs in your room and probably have, you know, equal if not greater success in selling your stock. So, yeah. you know, uh, while, while obviously there is a benefit to, to getting the community uh, community out there, you know, uh, up in front of people's faces, you know, you, uh, you also kind of have to put the animals first. And it, is it really worth, you know, taking them out of their cage, putting them in a deli cup or, or a small container and driving them around um, a state or across state lines um, and then bring them back and put them back in their cage? Um but I mean that that's the main reason I I haven't done shows in the past is you know and I'm I'm from Pennsylvania so Hamburg was always the big one and um not not to say anything bad about Hamburg but if you've been to Hamburg you know why you might not want to bring your your best animal <laughs> mm-hmm. to Hamburg <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, to, yeah. to me, that's the much bigger issue, other than the, the stress on on the babies, which I, I agree is is an issue. But you know, those things are shipped overseas, yeah. and 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 the vast majority of them they handle that. So, but I'm more worried about exactly what you said, Brian. Is what are you exposing those babies to? Your neighbor, or you know, everybody else that's that's walked through, you know, a hundred different vendors, especially at a big show, and. So for me, that that dictates absolutely they need to be quarantined. Uh, after I do a show, all my animals, you know, they go on quarantine for two months. Yeah. So, yep. you know, that's and, a hassle. And my, my situation is probably a little bit unique. And the first two years that I went to the Daytona show, I took the, the previous year's animals to sell. I took yearlings to sell. Uh, because I, I don't know uh, what your experience is in Florida, Brian, and you're in a different part of Florida, but generally my eggs are laid in uh, May and June. They're, I'm getting eggs now, and generally they're hatching. Like last year, my eggs were hatching during the expo. They were hatching in mid-August, and the year before they were hatching uh, in the first week in September as I was, coming back from Costa Rica. And so I usually end up holding on to them and, and take them to the Daytona show as yearlings so that they're they're well-established and then just try and uh, and insulate them as well as I can uh, in, in what they're being displayed in so that they're not being exposed to whatever might be nearby. Uh, and and being the only one with Kofiow, I've been fortunate in every one that I've taken, I've sold. I, I've never come back from that show with, in fact, I've come back, you know, feeling like I really didn't want to sell all those, all those animals. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the uh, first couple of years, they, and they really were my, my best, most productive years, uh, I sold every one that I took. And uh, fortunately, they were priced such that you didn't have uh, Joe Schmo that really didn't have a clue what he was doing. Most people that are going to spend 1500 bucks or more on a snake are going to have some idea of 
what they're doing, hopefully. Right. Um, yep. So, and, and there was an eclectic enough uh, uh, group of people attending back then in Daytona that, uh, you know, I had uh, the veterinarian from Brazil buying them and a uh, guy from California who, who has quite a few chondros and, um, you know, just people from all over the place. Uh but that's changed a little bit. That show's changed, and um, you know, I'm I'm a little more reluctant uh, now to pack up and have to quarantine afterwards if I bring any back. And 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 I've just sold the things before I've had a chance to to get them to the show. I, I don't keep them long enough for them to become yearlings. Um, you know, if they hatch in September. By the time August rolls around again, they're all sold. Uh, yep. And Rico had the same thing going on with his Kofi out. He would run out before I would, and then he would start sending people to me. And between the two of us, by the time Daytona rolled around, I was lucky to have you know two or three to take. Um, but again, that's that's uh, that's just the. Uh, that's one reason why I, I really am trying to focus on this one locale because there there really needs to be multiple groups around the country uh, going so that uh, so that we have some sort of insurance that uh, these guys will be represented well into the future. I don't want to be responsible for the you know last of the Kofiel uh, you know disappearing. <laughs> Feel free to send them down here. <laughs> yeah, you just you know you could send some to all of us. We'll make sure they they're around. I'm gonna work yeah, on it. You know what? I've, <laughs> I've got I, I've got several of Ricos that are looking good. This is either gonna be a really good year or a really bad year because I should have already I, I should already have something in the hot box. There should already be eggs in the incubator, and uh, things are running late this year. But uh, then again, there's three or four females that look really good. So I don't know. Nice. Time will tell. Excellent. Hey, Chuck, what, what uh, wattage light bulb do you use in your incubator? Gary. <laughs> <laughs> what? Come on, Gary. Wattage? What? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Gary. I'm, I got too many things in my brain. Don't mess with me. I got too much power <laughs> in my mind. Now. <laughs> No, I love my. I'll do a plug for the hot box incubators that sea serpents are putting out. This is a great incubator. Um, my buddy uh, Elliot Jacobson, uh, the, the veterinarian from U.S., just bought a second one, and he's hatching eggs left and right in it. Uh, you know, for a moderately priced unit, uh, I think personally they're a great deal. Uh, bargain. How many uh, how many clutches can you get in the incubator, Chuck? Or how many boxes? Or is it just one uh, well, standalone un- signal box? Un- unfortunately, I've never had the problem of uh, not being able to fit them all in there. But I've got the uh, uh, the 48 inch model, so I could easily fit uh, uh, one, two, three, four, five. Six. I could fit eight shoe boxes in here. Uh, oh wow! Which yeah, if I was ever fortunate enough to have that many eggs, uh, I, I'm in no danger of running out of space in there. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I, I I dream of the day when I have that 
that incubator <laughs> filled up. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're right, but uh, I'm leaning more towards I could deal with the blessing. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. All coffee. Yeah. All coffee. I would just give up. I would just give up sleep for you know a couple of months, and everything would be fine. <laughs> Got some well, we're kind of we're kind of going full full circle. We started the show talking about the uh, Rico auction, and um, Chuck mentioned that that he, after some debate and uh, some decision-making, decided to go with Facebook. And so Buddy and I always like to get our guest input on social media about what it's done um, maybe to the the chondro community or, or perhaps even the reptile community in general, uh, positive, negative. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts about social media? In particular, I think Facebook is what we're we're all talking about it. I think we're all members of Facebook uh, here involved in this show, but uh, there are certainly some, well, I guess we call we call old school guys that are not involved uh, in Facebook and actually view Facebook as a detriment. So if maybe, Brian, do you want to uh, start out and uh, give your opinion about social media, what it's done uh, you know, to, to our hobby? Sure. Um, I mean, I... I I'm in kind of a unique position. It seems like everybody that's kind of my age or younger in this hobby is is all pro Facebook and everything. But I I started a lot long uh, a, a lot younger than most. Um, so I got my start on Conjure Web, um, and then MVF. So I'm I'm much more partial to MVF. I miss it. Um, I miss the camaraderie and and all of that. Um, it seems like everything's mm-hmm. kind of migrated to Facebook, unfortunately, um, which it, it has its its good sides. I mean, obviously, it, uh, it it seems to be a good platform for selling animals and you know these uh, these auction type things like uh, like Chuck and Darlene are doing. Um, it, it has its benefits, but as far as um, you know, conversation, the exchange of ideas and and techniques and things like that, I don't think anything will ever be what the MVF or uh, or Morelia Pythons was right. Um, right. I, I think there there was kind of like a uh, a golden age, uh, maybe like uh, maybe like 2000 to 2010 ish um, was was a really cool time, um, especially for me, um, being that I came into it so young. I got to kind of uh, be part of that, um, but there, there was just a lot of a lot of information and a lot of uh, change in husbandry technique and, and all that sort of stuff, all kind of uh, happening over that that time span, um, especially in that that northeast region. Um, right. You know, I, there, there's. I mean, everybody knows, but I mean, buddy, buddy can tell you there's. There's keepers everywhere up there, especially in Maryland. Um, so I I kind of uh, uh, latched on as as a, a young a young keeper to a few people in that area and and learned learned a heck of a lot. I got to see a lot of really really cool stuff um, and learn. Fortunately, through through other people's mistakes on some things and and other people's successes and um, I owe all of that. To 
Pondra Webb and, and the MBS. Um, so, okay. so I'll always be partial to that. Um, I hope it comes back. I'm not particularly optimistic that it'll ever come back to the way it was. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of my take on it. Um, Facebook seems to be the trend and it doesn't appear like it's going anywhere. So, uh, it seems like we'll, we'll have to make it work the best we can. You know, one of the best things that I thought, and it certainly wasn't my idea to do it, but to have a Facebook page, and there is a Facebook page, it's Facebook MVF. And so, you know, there, there's idea, a link. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah you know, it, yeah, there's yeah. a link to the Facebook page that you can just click on it and it takes you to the MVF. And I, I hope that's been somewhat helpful in, in getting, uh, it's the new people that we need to worry about getting to the MBF. It's not the it's not the establishment. So hopefully that's helped some. Yeah. Definitely. That was great. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. 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 I mean I, I really hope that it that it sticks around because like uh, for instance today I I was just doing like a, a few searches on some random topics in, in Google and you know the first like four or five things that pop up are all MBF threads. And, and yep. it, it's all incredibly valuable information that you forget about or maybe you didn't see because you weren't very active on the forum at the time. But yep. uh, it, 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 there's there's so much knowledge on that forum that you know I hope I hope people uh, people use it. Yeah, it's it's absolutely, and I'll let the other guests um, uh, go into how they feel. But there's no search on Facebook like there is on the MVF. Yeah, no, there isn't. Gary, uh, what are your thoughts? I think yeah, I know. Yeah, you know, it's so it's really it's really sad for me, honestly. I think I love the MVF. I mean, that's that's my passion, Condros, and I, I love the MVF. It was right my go-to, you know. And I was like Brian, I was on Condro Web before that. Um, it's, it's it's I don't know if it's a coincidence coincidence or not, but it seems that when Facebook was really taking a hold of the Condro community, it's like we lost Rico, and now we're slowly losing the MVF. Um, you know, despite us all, you know, we're all trying to do our best and hold on. I. I know I try to go there. I go. I still go on a regular basis, and I'll put information in. Um, just you know, I'll post on some threads, or I'll put up some threads, some pictures. Yep. And, um, yep. But listen, Facebook is you like it or whatever you think of it. I mean, it's it's not going anywhere. Um, hey, there's a lot of good things that came from it. I, I met a lot of new people. Um, it's a lot of great people on Facebook. Um, just getting into the hobby, um, you know, and you can see they have a real interest in, in Condros. So it brings the good and the bad. I mean, I haven't really experienced anything negative on Facebook yet. I mean, the information tends to go into a black hole on these posts and stuff. That's what right. I don't like. Like you, you can't yeah, reference it. Does. it but, right. Um, so, but listen, I have nothing bad to say about Facebook. It's, um, it's. Uh, I, I haven't been on it long enough, but I haven't had any negative experiences. I like it, and I uh, just, uh, I yearn for the days of uh, the MVF. That's, that's. I equate it to, you know, living in New Jersey, I used to commute into Manhattan every day to go to work. And um, on the train, it was it was so much more efficient. It got me there so quickly, the train. And, uh, you know, I didn't have to worry about traffic or anything like that. But there were so many cars in the train and so many people, there was no real sense of community. Now, the bus was a lot, it took me a lot longer to get into the city. But you know what? There was about the same 30 people on the bus every single day. If I left something on there, if I fell asleep, Somebody would wake me, or I, and I, I kind of equate that. I think of the MVF, you know, versus Facebook with the the train bus analogy, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. well, but that's, it's, uh, you know, Gary, you're the classic example. You ask yourself, 
how many times a day are you on Facebook and how many times a day or a week do yeah. you go to the MVF? Yeah, well, I go to MVF every single day, but it might be, you know, two or three times a day. I go to Facebook, I mean, no less than, I mean, it's just where I go. It's just I mean, you're just so, there I mean, minimally yeah, I mean, 50 times. I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, Bill, like you yeah. are. I'm very active, uh, you know, in social media. So yeah, minimally 50 times a day, at least. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's just yeah. always running in your background, so to speak. It's yeah, just, it's always on your laptop. Well, it's you know? live. It's so alive. It's there, and it's you know, it's so you know, it's exciting. You know, yeah. so I don't check Chuck, my MySpace sure. account though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, once again, you know, I'm feeling really old here <laughs> because I, I, I remember when uh, we started the Kingsville Herpetological Society in, like, 1985, and uh, we had these killer uh, once-a-month meetings where Eugene Bissett or, uh, or uh, Walter Offenberg or George Van Horn um, we had all these great speakers, and we had a 32-page newsletter that went all over the country, and even a couple went out of the country. And, I mean, it was the most – people would come and socialize. We would have 150 people come to these yep. meetings. And, you know, Gainesville's always been sort of a herp hotspot with uh, – with Eugene and Fred Antonio and Elliot Jacobson, all the guys from the, the vet school in UF and the zoo program at Santa Fe. Um, but uh, I remember when when Internet, <laughs> it kind of, it was the demise of the Herp Society. The, the Herp Society yeah, right. finally gave up because, yep. you know, people didn't drive to a place and, talk to each other face-to-face anymore. They just got on the computer and uh, talked yeah, to people who were the... into whatever they were into. And, yep. uh, Gary, you'll be proud of me. I sent my first instant message during this auction. I figured out how to do an instant <laughs> message, man. Good for you. Tell me I'm not, tell me I'm not 21st century, dude. Let me tell you something. <laughs> the first one will soon be your 100th one. It's just, you know, I, it's just I, a way to communicate I, now. I had never, ever in my life done an message, and I didn't know how to do it, but I was forced to figure it out. And uh, my son, who's 19, set up a Facebook page for me a couple of years ago for the snakes because I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't have a website still still on the to-do list. But I figured he said, hey, you can use Facebook as a web page, and so that's what I, a website, so that's what I've done. And, Boy, that's uh, a familiar that, that's a familiar uh, conversation, Chuck. <laughs> I I didn't even know Bill, or, or buddy, I didn't even know um about this thing with MVF. I I for two years I was reading Kofiow and I didn't even know MVF existed. And wow. and I don't know how it was at some point somehow I, I, I guess Rico mentioned it, or or somehow I, I found myself there, and it was like, oh, my God, check this out. <laughs> wow, what a great <laughs> site. And uh, like you said, there's a wealth of information and this huge community of Condro people. And I had no clue what was going on when when we started this auction for Rico on the Facebook page. 
and the, the only negative thing that I've heard from it has been, you know, well, why didn't you do it on MDF? And I had no idea that MDF was sort of on the down slide because of Facebook. I, I just, but you know, I've been wrapped up doing my thing, and I had no clue. And uh, and now that it's been mentioned, I've noticed that uh, well, sure enough, MDF is not as uh, you know, it's not as happening as it as it used to be. And uh, I hate that because it, it's one of the the greatest uh, sites I've ever seen. And uh, but I had no clue that Facebook was contributing to its demise. Uh, you know that was just not something I was aware of. And uh, right. so as far as social media goes to me, I, I, I plead ignorance, and it's a absolutely genuine plea. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I've just been really pretty ignorant. Uh, I, I've learned what I've had to learn when I've had to learn it. And um, and basically, uh, it's a valuable thing, and it's never going to go away. And and I guess it's for the better. But uh, for me, I think about it as the demise of social gatherings where people went and sat down and had a beer face to face and talked about animals, talked about snakes. <laughs> you know, like. Uh, like an ICAST situation, you know, we used to look so forward right. to those meetings every month, and um, you know, it, it just went away as people were able to sit in their living room or bedroom or whatever and get on the computer and talk about snakes. But uh, we talked a lot about that. Uh, we talked a lot about that at Carpet Fest, which was a, Carpet Fest was a, a mini ICAST. I mean, it was a much smaller venue, and it just was a matter of hours and not days. But, um, you know, ICAST for me was the first time that I ventured outside of my, um, you know, sitting in my living room and talking to my reptile friends community. I mean, I, I got on a plane by myself. I didn't know a single person in person at ICAST, but I decided wow. to go. And, um, and and once I did that, I was hooked. And I wish I was around the days that, that uh, the reptile societies were were big. I can imagine how frustrating that is, you know, to somebody like Chuck or Eugene or, you know, the people that, you know, that was just a monthly thing for them. Uh-huh. I never experienced it, you know. But, uh, and really, really it was a bi-monthly thing because we had our planning meeting uh, on the in-between, you know, every two-week thing because we would meet at the Banana Boat, which was our official Gainesville Herb Society bar drinking establishment, <laughs> and they knew us all. They had our, our space prepared, and they would bring us beer and, and sodas occasionally, and... Uh, you know, we would have our planning meetings at the Banana Boat, and that was the core people that worked on the newsletter and coordinated the speaker series and all that. And then you had the big social gathering two weeks later at the meeting. And uh, it was it was a monthly thing. It's kind of like having ICAST once a month. And yep. uh, only, of course, you know, it was it was not as focused on uh, it wasn't focused on on one species. It was just a bunch of hurt people uh, that came together and 
but there's no substitute for that. It's kind of like field herping versus looking at them in captivity or, or you know, on the computer. When you when you go out in the field and you find an eyelash viper out in the rainforest, there's no substitute for that. Or if you flip yep. a piece of tin and find a corn snake in the wild, there's just nothing like that. You, know, you, you can't describe that feeling uh, unless you've experienced it. You just can't relate to it. But uh, anyway, that's that's my little I'm getting old rant about social media. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chuck, there's there there's supposed to be a a Southeast carpet fest I think in November. So uh, I think it's okay. in West Palm Beach. So we'll uh, we'll meet up there. <laughs> Sounds good to me. I'm all for it. Fantastic. I'll be there. I'll there come. You go. I'm all for it. And Chris, uh, Chris Wolf is a heck of a nice guy in Tampa that does Aru, and and I don't know, Aru was his main thing a while back. Um, but uh, Chris is a super nice guy. I went and, and met yeah, yeah. him, and actually went down there to buy some Nepenthes that he picked up for me at uh, at Bush Gardens, and uh, got to see all see his Aru collection and and uh, meet his family and all that. And he was at ICAST. Um, yeah, right. Chris Wolf, heck of a nice guy. Yeah, very nice guy. Um, very, very nice. But uh, yeah, anytime, anytime we can get together, actually physically get together, uh, and and uh, talk about our passion, that's a good thing. Agreed. Agreed. You know? Gentlemen, there is a lot of concern about uh, the MVF. I don't know we had Greg Schroeder on. I think around the first of the year, um, yep. he was on, and Greg runs the MVF. And one of the things that he was kind of adamant about was that, you know, even though there's not a lot of posts on MVF at the moment, the screen views are still there. So the site's still being visited. It's just people yeah. aren't posting. And when, so. you know, it's like uh, the chicken or the egg body's going to happen is as the posts become, it's like right. you go to a website that hasn't been updated, you know. So, yeah, it's yeah, weird. Like, true. I can visit the MVF tonight, and then tomorrow morning you can go check out, and there'll be no new post overnight, you know, which is so weird. There used to be so much stuff weird, going on. Yeah, it is right. weird. Yeah, I remember when there used to be, like, 20 new posts the next day. And uh, even though it was a couple, only a few years that I was going there every day, it's like it was the happening place. And uh, all I know to do there is make a concerted effort once uh, once I have time to, to think. Uh you know, make a concerted effort to, to frequent it and uh, post and keep it alive. Because there is a wealth of information there. Yeah. And, uh, and a great community of people. Well, gentlemen, it's the uh, approaching the witching hour. We're going to be cut off here uh, in just a couple of minutes. So... I hate when that happens and it's unannounced, so I want to take the opportunity to uh, thank each and every one of you guys for participating. The, uh, the time has flown by quickly, as it always does on the show, so Buddy and I want to both uh, thank you very much for participating. If anybody wants to uh, wrap up with any last uh, statements, feel free to do so. I was just going to say I was wondering what in the heck we're going to talk about for that much time, and uh, I feel like you know I feel like we just started, and and I haven't even had a chance to talk to you guys yet. 
<laughs> yeah, it flew by. But, uh, uh, Gary, I, I know you've I got something to say. No, no, I, was no, I say, really appreciate it. I was going to say well, thanks, thanks, Johnny. You know, I, I was going to say thanks for having me. I, you know, I, I, Brian's the only person I don't. I, I don't know if I ever met Brian. I, I don't know if I know Brian, but after um, it's nice meeting, him, virtually meeting him tonight, and. Um, it's going to say, Chuck, yes, thanks again for everything you're doing for Rico and Darlene and, um, you know, Bill and Buddy, thanks so much for having me. You guys are, you guys do an amazing job of, uh, you know, keeping the Conjure community alive and, uh, you know, I see all the effort you guys put into the MVS and, you know, I just, uh, just know it's appreciated. Well right. put. Good. Thank Very you much. Well put. Yep. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll ditto all that and uh, I look forward to ICAST too and, yeah, thank you guys for for the Southeast Carpet Fest. Absolutely, and uh, all right, Buddy and Bill, all I right. appreciate what you guys do a lot. I appreciate uh, the effort you guys make and the opportunity to to uh, uh, be invited. Well, well you know, thank thanks all for you guys participating. For, yeah, sharing your knowledge and your experience, we appreciate it. Yeah, have a great night, everybody. Yeah, you guys too. Thank you, the guests. As Bill and I have said before, the guests make the show. Bill and I are just here to listen Amen. and talk snakes with our guests. Um, another, another very good show, Bill. Um, yeah, we'll we'll have to maybe do round two because we really didn't get too deep in the things. We we kind of skirted around a few things, and it's so much knowledge. Everyone's willing to share, and which is a great thing. I know. Yeah, it, it's uh, another great show. Um, Everybody did awesome, and uh, talk about a top-notch group of guys. We we know how to pick them. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Um, I guess uh, announcements. Uh, we're, we are going to redo the Michael Cermak show. So there was some audio difficulty. Um, Michael wasn't happy with the quality of the show, and Bill and I weren't either. So we're going to redo that show, and it'll probably be just a private recording, and then we'll we'll make that available as a podcast and. Uh, you know, stay tuned for our next next uh, next show. Yeah, absolutely, buddy. Have a good night. I enjoyed speaking with you. Had a great time, Bill. Thank you so much. Have a good night, everyone. Uh-huh. Take care.